All right. Good evening. Good evening. I think I did. I didn't mess up the intro too bad. I think I got it. Sorry, I was a little bit late. I was talking with um. Oh, there we go. Bump my computer desk. Um, I was talking with Mrs. Human about plans for this week. And uh, what I think we're going to do is I'm going to do all evening shows for this week and next week, possibly part of the week after, because both of my kids are home for the uh, Christmas holiday break. And it's just it's just easier. I need to play dad during the day. Um, well, actually, I need to play dad 24 seven unless my wife is home. Uh, to uh, take over, take over the kids and make sure they don't kill each other. This morning, both boys were trying to kill each other. They were, um, I think we had like three or four kind of fights. I mean, not like throwing fist, but there was some, some hitting and some biting, uh, this morning before lunchtime. Like, uh, they were, it's that it's like the first day of proper Christmas break and my kids are already trying to kill each other. Um, so apologies for moving the show to the evening on short notice, but, uh, that's what I, that's what needed to happen or else there was going to be injuries. Uh, so I think the, I think the best solution is for me to do my show in the, an evening show at 9 30 PM, um, for this week, next week, and part of the following week until both boys are back on their regular school schedule. And, uh, I can do it. If you don't know what I usually do is I do my show in the morning because both boys are at school during that time and I don't have to worry about that. And that's also why I have a hard cutoff of about 1140 AM because I have to leave and go pick the youngest one up from school. So anyway, that's the story on why I'm doing a night show. And that's the plan for the next two weeks is to do evening streams, which is a okay with me. Um, I don't mind drinking a late night cup of coffee. I do it anyway. And it also means that I don't have a hard cutoff. I can go through the material and, you know, just see where the show goes, whether it's a two hour show or a three hour show, I can just do it. And, um, I like that. So opens, opens me up to be able to do a longer show. So I hope you guys are doing great. If, um, you missed it. We had an episode defected last night that was pretty dang good. Um, let me uh, switch over here. That is the wrong button. I swear, guys, I've done this before. I swear I know what I'm doing. Where even is it? There we go. There we go. Okay. Okay. So right here, over on Badlands Media, Burning Bright and I did our seventh episode of Defected last night. It was a lot of fun. Burning Bright says it's his favorite episode so far. I would rank it as one of my top three. I kind of think last week was my favorite, um, but last night was pretty good. Um, if you missed it, it is over on Badlands Media on Rumble. Just search just search it on Rumble. You'll find us. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We talked about Twitter files. We spent, we spent like an hour or so on Elon and everything going on with Elon Musk. And there's a lot. And, um, we had a good back and forth on it, uh, from a, from a, a narrative perspective, of course. And we talked about, you know, it's a bunch of topics like that and, and a few others like, uh, the J six, uh, committee referrals. And, um, there was something else that I'm already forgetting about that we talked about anyway, 
pretty good show. If you missed it, it's over on Rumble. And I want to say thank you to everybody who hit the thumbs up or the plus button on it. That our our show hit number five on the Rumble Battle Board, and I really appreciate that, guys. Um, if you enjoy the content that I put out or anybody on Badlands Media puts out. Um, please make sure to hit that plus button or the thumbs up, depending on whether you're watching on a, on a browser or on the app, because it really helps us out with reaching new people. It puts us on the main, on the front page of rumble and yeah, it's, it's just an easy, if you like it, it's just an easy way to, to help us out. JFK, that's the arigato. Thank you very much. That's the other topic we talked about on defected last night was the JFK files. And actually I said to burning bright, um, either last night or this morning that I may clip out, um, part of that segment where we talked about JFK because we had, he had burning bright, especially had some really good um, observations about JFK and how digging into the JFK assassination and exposing the CIA and the systems, which made it possible and proving to the American people that it was, that's, it was an assassination by the CIA and that what happened then connects to so many things that happened decades and decades after, including up until now is such a massive red pill. And it's a red pill that touches people across the entire political spectrum. Um, that it's, it's regardless of politics, it's such an eye opening, um, truth and such an eye opening part of our history in America that must be exposed and laid bare for everybody to see. And if it is done, it opens up so many people's minds to so much more. So I need to clip, I need to take some time out and clip that segment and share it around on all my socials. I think that was probably my favorite part of the show. So, all right. Today on this show, which is just human number 164. Yes. Just human number 164. We're going to talk about the January 6th committee's criminal referral. And I'm going to try and give you some perspective on that. And we're going to talk about either. I'm going to give you guys a choice. I think I have a collection of news that I can get into right here. There's Sam Bankman freed and there's a grand jury, uh, Paperwork that was unsealed having to do with special counsel Smith's investigation. There's some Durham stuff. And then there's DOJ. This story just broke tonight. DOJ snooping on the House Intelligence Committee. But we also have these Twitter files. If I get into the Twitter files, I'm going to get into file six, the supplemental, and then file seven which leads in a, in a couple different directions and it's going to take off. It's going to take up a bulk of the show. So I'm trying to figure out if I want to get into that tonight. I don't really want to save it for Wednesday um, because there's going to be so much more that happens between now and Wednesday night. Um, so I, I, I feel like I, I want to hit some of this stuff. We'll see. We'll we'll see. I'm I'm thinking on it right now. I'm gonna make a. I don't know what do they call it in football, an audible or something. I don't know. I really should. 
I really don't need to use football analogies. I need to think about, see, I want to use Formula One analogies and metaphors, but uh, it's going to be like me and five other people in chat who understand them. So let's do, let's, you know, I see a lot of people saying Durham, the Durham one won't take that, that long. Uh, here, let's go to January 6th committee. Okay. Let's do the January 6th committee first. Thank you to everybody watching on Rumble, Foxhole, DLive, and Telegram. Much appreciated. Executive decision, HQ Lion. There we go. I should just, uh, I should go with that. Um, I saw some people mentioning Carrie Lake. I did listen to, uh, part of that hearing today and, uh, Tracy Beans did a really good thread on Twitter. Um, about what was going on in that hearing. It was it was good. It was a good hearing. All right. First thing. To no one's surprise, January 6th panel was going to vote on a decision to prosecute Trump, even though early on last summer, or not early on, about halfway through the January 6th committee's time, uh, back in June, they said they weren't going to do this, that they weren't going to make referrals, but of course they were going to do it. Uh, that was the whole, the whole point of the January 6th committee was to reinforce narratives, to push narratives, to do programming, um, to try and get gotcha moments, um, to showcase as much as they could, just trying to make people believe their, their lies about what happened on January 6th. And so ultimately January 6th committee, which is, has ended now all these almost, I don't know how many, how many people on this panel are no longer going to be in Congress. It's more than, it's more than two, isn't it? Out of the nine, at least two of them aren't going to be there anymore. Um, it's over. So today they voted nine zero. And of course, y'all know this committee is crooked. It's been a crooked committee since the very beginning. It's never been legitimate. Uh, Trump isn't just being hyperbolic when he calls it the unselect committee. Um, I heard somebody on a Twitter spaces today trying to make the argument that, well, they could have, the Republicans could have had people on there, but they, they chose not to. No, 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 that's incorrect. They, the committee refused to have the people on it that the Republicans wanted to have on it. So the Republicans said, okay, well, fine. I'm not, we're not going to put anybody. We're not going to put, we're not going to agree to let the Democrats select who we put on a committee. So we're just not going to participate in this. Um, and they, and then another person who rebuffed it on the Twitter spaces was like, you know, this isn't how Washington normally works in Congress. The each side gets to choose whoever they want to be on the committee. And it doesn't matter if it's someone who's super right or moderate right or whatever. It's each party chooses who they want in. But not with the unselect committee. So anyway, they had their hearing today, which I listened to part of it, but I couldn't. I had to bow out. It was uh, that's when I switched to the Lake lawsuit hearing because it was just kabuki theater you know it was just programming um and it was really boring stuff it was like made for npr but they voted 9-0 to recommend charges against trump and so it's a post-it note from them just a piece of paper that says look doj this is what we think you should charge trump for 
One, obstruction of an official proceeding. Two, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. Three, false statements. And four, inciting an insurrection. So that's their narrative deployed right there. That's the narrative that they want out there, that Trump is guilty of all four of these crimes. They really want the words obstruction, conspiracy, and insurrection to stick. That's what they want. Um, And Burning Bright and I talked about this last night on uh, Defected, that this was their goal. They're going to recommend this stuff, and it's all about the narrative. Chris Paul, who is back on Twitter, I'm your moderator, is his his handle. You should give him a follow. Chris Paul is awesome. And he is bashing <laughs> he is bashing lefties and woke tards on Twitter left and right. I would not be surprised if he gets mass reported and suspended again soon. Uh but he screen capped the CNN uh website right here. January sixth panel refers Trump and others for prosecution. It wasn't just Trump, it was like Trump, Rudy, Meadows, some others. Uh maybe Navarro too. I don't remember. And they have this little uh graphic right here. Attack on democracy. January sixth hearings. And the narrative value guys is the only value that these recommendations carry. It's really important for everyone to understand that the DOJ doesn't have the power to indict anybody. They can't bring criminal charges. What they can do is recommend it. They can ask DOJ to indict someone or to bring charges against someone, but they can't make it happen. The, and, and when it comes to, especially to this January 6th hearing, the only value in what they've done with this this little note they've sent Merrick Garland is the narrative value that it holds so that CNN can do things like this and ABC and all the other MSM can do things like this. And for the conservative incorporated media, especially the conservative incorporated media who um, wish Trump would go away, that's the value that this holds for them. See, look, Trump, guys, you need to move on from Trump because – He's he's too damaged now. After the January 6th committee, they they recommended charges. This is going to hurt Trump forever. You know, that's what they the conservative incorporated media are going to push that narrative. They're actually hoping that Trump will catch a charge. Um I know that may be hard for a lot of people to accept, but there are many many people in conservative incorporated media who are hoping that D- they are praying that DOJ brings charges against Trump and that Trump can't run for office or is in somehow involved in a criminal proceeding when the primaries come around in 2024. They don't want Trump. They want MAGA, but they want MAGA without Trump. Anyway, this is the only value that it has is narrative value. Now getting to, This thread from Kyle Cheney is very interesting here. And I know that Kyle Cheney of Politico is someone that a lot of people don't like. He is on the left and you have to use a filter when you read his work. But I got to say, Kyle Cheney is on top of things. He's on top of court filings. He's on top of things that are, at least for me, are very interesting, such as grand juries 
and subpoenas and indictments and all things related to January 6th and several other legal topics. Kyle Cheney's on top of it. And he's his Twitter is a good place to go for the latest. You just got to have a filter. You just got to have a good filter on um, when you when you look at it. Now, I saw some Rumble rants. I better catch these Rumble rants before they disappear because Rumble makes them disappear after so much time. Von Hitch, good evening, sir. He says, in the dark times, it's more important than ever to be the light. Amen. Amen. Guys, you should follow Von Hitch over on True Social. He's a, I'm going to call, he's a metal worker, but I'm going to call him a, an artist with metal. He is a fantastic follow on True Social. He posts some really amazing pics of, of hot rods that he works on. He builds. And uh, yeah, he's a great follow. He's doing art with metal. Oh, I lost one of them. One of them disappeared right when I closed that one. Where's the next one? Here we go. Truth to Freedom. Truth to Freedom says, I love it. I'm not a morning person. I live in Colorado, so Kyle's show is just too early for me. I'll be in on all the upcoming live shows. Thank you. Thank you for the Rumble Rant, and I'm glad you're going to be here. R.L. Skeeter, thank you very much for the coffee and cigar money. They say, Kyle, regarding the Lake versus Hobbs lawsuit, what's your gut feeling? Also, why do you feel Fincham's case was dismissed? I can't comment on Fincham's case because I didn't pay that much attention to it. Um, and I didn't, I haven't read the dismissal of it. So I really can't comment on it. Um, I have a great, I have a very positive feeling about Lake, uh, Lake's lawsuit. Um, I think, I think Lake's lawsuit is fantastically laid out. Um, I think it's well constructed. I think it has all the ingredients needed to go far. Even if it is dismissed um, there in Arizona, I think it can go higher. I I really like Carrie Lake's lawsuit, um, and I have a really good feeling about it. So if of all the lawsuits that are out there that people are getting hyped about, that's the only one, basically, that I'm hyped about. Uh, I really like it. And thank you, and thank you very much for the rumble rant. R. Terrell, what about congressional hearings? If they recommend criminal charges, are they referred to courts or DOJ or special counsel? So, thank you for the rumble rant. And what is going to happen with this one is that it is referred to DOJ Merrick Garland, and Merrick Garland is going. I'm telling you guys, Merrick Garland's going to say, "I've appointed a special counsel to investigate January 6th." Thank you for your recommendation. The special counsel will be making decisions as regards any charges that's that's what he's going to say because merrick garland already pointed a special counsel to handle anything like this so whatever evidence they get from the january 6th committee which what they got i'm going to get into it here isn't all we can't see it all right now um, it's going to go to special counsel, Jack Smith. It's in his purview and well, we'll get to that. All right. From Kyle Cheney today, the January 6th committee is convening to adopt blah, its final report, blah, blah, blah. Most of the report won't be immediately public. That'll come out along with witness transcripts and evidence in the coming days. Today is the two-year anniversary of this Donald Trump tweet. 
which the committee found triggered a surge of extremist activity aimed at January 6th. It's this one right here, and we're going to come back to it later. This is from Donald Trump exactly two years ago to the day. Peter Navarro releases 36-page report alleging election fraud more than sufficient to swing victory to Trump. A great report by Peter. Statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. Will be wild. I remember this tweet, and I remember that report, and I remember sharing that report, and I think catching a temporary suspension on Facebook for it. I think that's one of the things I shared on Facebook that I got a temporary suspension before I got a permanent one. The committee is now summing up its broad findings. They got eight chapters in their their findings, the big lie, state local government pressure, false electors, which special counsel Smith is paying particular attention to the false, the uh, fake slates of electors efforts to corrupt DOJ Pence pressure campaign, summoning the mob 187 minutes of an action <laughs> analysis of the Capitol attack. Select committee shares a little bit of new testimony about concerns among Trump aides about their hope Trump would be more explicitly call for nonviolence. And the left is making a big deal about this right here. This is a person named Hogan Gidley texting Hope Hicks, who's a familiar name. Hey, I know you're seeing this, but he really, this is at 2.19 p.m. He, meaning Trump, really should tweet something about being nonviolent. Hope Hicks replies, I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. So the left is making a big deal saying, hey, Trump got advice from Hope Hicks or that he needed to remind people ahead of the rally to be nonviolent. And Trump didn't do it. See, he want and then they're using that to to damage Trump, saying he was advised he should have done this, and he didn't, and that's because he's evil and he's the bad orange man, and he really wanted violence. Um, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. Um, it's a. <laughs> I understand why they're keying in on this, but you can't make much of it. You certainly can't build a criminal case off of that. So the select committee is referring Trump and Eastman, John Eastman, for obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the U.S. It's a notable moment, but one that is not a surprise. The committee revealed this conclusion late back March. In March, they tipped that this was going to be their conclusion because this was all planned out. The committee also intends to refer Trump for conspiracy to make false statements over efforts to convince allies to send false documents to the National Archives claiming to be legitimate presidential electors. And by the way, that's what I have. Some of the grand jury stuff that was unsealed recently um, has to do with that, has to do with Eastman, has to do with Jeffrey Clark. It's notable the select committee's executive summary indicated the panel would be referring Trump for seditious conspiracy and conspiracy to impede a federal officer, but they didn't include that in their public presentation and may have opted against it at the end. Fast facts on the summary. Here are the 80 plus witnesses and interviews referenced in the executive summary. A list them here, by the way, an underreported story today. Um, I shared it on Twitter was that audio of general Flynn's testimony to the January 6th committee was 
released to, to is it either CBS or ABC? I think it was CBS News. CBS News got a hold of General Flynn's testimony, and uh, I didn't put it in my stack. But let me grab it real quick. Because it, it, it is... It is interesting, one, that they got a hold of it. Two, it's interesting because of the questions, and we're not going to tear into it. I just want to find the article real quick. Here it is. It's CBS. Exclusive Flynn deposition reveals questions about pressure on U.S. intelligence ahead of January 6th. And the value in, they, they say this in the article, the value in this is that Flynn is te- is pleading the fifth the entire time. So you can't read anything into that because once you start pleading the fifth, you're going to continue pleading the fifth. What you can g- glean something from are the questions because most likely the questions they're asking him, they already know the answers to. So you can get a general sense of where they're coming from and where they're wanting to go with their questions of General Flynn. But Flynn pleads the fifth the whole time, and the value in it is all in the questions. And this article is pretty interesting. I shared it on Twitter if you want to go find it or if you want to go to CBS News to find it. You can analyze these questions and get a sense of where they're coming from. Um, I don't, I, I'm sure you guys are like me. You don't hold anything against Flynn or blame him at all for pleading the fifth to the January 6th committee. He's not the only one who did, and I don't blame him at all for doing it. And once you start pleading the fifth you're you kind of need to continue pleading the fifth throughout the all the questions because otherwise they're going to infer from the questions you pleaded the fifth to compared to the ones you didn't they're going to try and infer something from that from which questions you chose so you always do it if you're smart you plead it to all of them even if they're asking you what is your birthday like i'm going to plead the fifth (laughs) <laughs> you do that so they can't discern uh what you're trying to hide um if anything so big list of people 80 plus people that they interviewed for January 6th committee not mentioned in the summary but possibly mentioned in the broader report are Jenny Thomas, Kelly Ward, Ali Alexander, Alex Jones and Nick Fuentes Here is the section of the executive summary that suggests the panel would be making a referral for seditious conspiracy and conspiracy to impede a federal officer, even though the committee didn't reflect it in its hearing just now. Okay, let me read this to you. The Department of Justice, through its investigative tools that exceed those of this committee, may have evidence sufficient to prosecute Trump under Section 372 and 2384. Accordingly, we believe sufficient evidence exists for a criminal referral of President Trump under these two statutes. Well, that's nice. I'm glad you um, bless your heart. I'm glad you think that Um, details. One thing the report makes clear how frequently Jeff Clark and his aide, Ken Klukowski, were in touch with John Eastman during these days and proceedings and following January 6th. Not all of these communications were previously known. This report cites Judge Dabney Friedrich's definition of corruptly, corruptly in the context of January 6th, obstruction, prosecution to argue it applies to Trump. Summary also refers three times to Mark Jacob, a cross between Mark Short and Greg Jacob. So there's an error there. 
there could be some stuff that's new in here, like these exchanges. And as I mentioned, I have this right here. And I'm just going to jump on this real quick. I'm not going to read this uh, filing, even though I had been planning on reading this, but um, I'm not, I'm not going to tonight because we have so much else, but judge Hal is, is a judge that's over a grand jury that's supposedly investigating Trump, even though I don't believe they're investigating Trump, they're investigating other things. There's a filing that was unsealed related to this. And it, what's interesting, maybe what's most interesting about it, is DOJ asked for it to be unsealed. This is from December 16th. A judge has unsealed new details about a DOJ investigator's efforts to access contacts between Rep. Scott Perry and Trump lawyers Jeff Clark and John Eastman. DOJ obtained 130,000 potentially privileged emails from Clark Eastman and Ken Klukowski, but asked Judge Howe last May to prioritize review of the 37 contacts that three men had with Perry. Hal agreed and determined the emails were not privileged. The emails DOJ accessed also include 331 auto-saved versions of an autobiography outlined that Jeffrey Clark had drafted. Clark said that Trump commented on the letter Clark had drafted to pressure states to reconvene their legislatures and consider appointing pro-Trump electors Trump made the comment, good letter, which if you hear MSM refer to something called the good letter, that's what they're talking about, is this letter from Jeffrey Clark that he showed Trump, and it was a letter that was supposed to be used to pressure legislatures to reconvene, select a different slate of electors. All Trump said about it was, "Eh, good letter, but it was never sent. The autobiography outline also provides a detailed description of January 3rd Oval Office meeting in which top DOJ officials discussed Clark's never sent letter, the good letter, and Trump's consideration of appointing Clark acting AG. What's important is these documents and opinions were unsealed at the request of DOJ. It's unclear why DOJ asked how to unseal them or in connection with what proceedings. It's also important that DOJ prioritized accessing Scott Perry's communications three months before they seized the phone from Congressman himself. So they've clearly viewed Perry as a significant player for far longer than understood. I think it's possible, guys, that DOJ asked for this stuff to be unsealed because they're presenting it to um, a grand, another grand jury somewhere. Because they're looking at indicting Scott Perry or indicting Eastman or indicting Jeffrey Clark. Something like that. I, th- I think I think there's some there's something going on, and this is this is giving a, a this is a sign of it. Um that's the only reason I can think of why DOJ itself moved to unseal this stuff. Um Something's up. Something's up. So, and it's going to, it's going to connect to this filing somehow. Anyway, back to this Kyle Cheney thread. I want to go to this right here. And actually, let me catch these rumble rants again before they expire. Um, 
There was another one I saw. Hewitt. Hewitt, thank you very much for the Rumble rant. Very generous of you. Have a wonderful Christmas. Thanks for your incredible efforts that keep us sane. Thank you very much for tuning in, and um, thank you very much for the Rumble rant. I hope I can try and keep people sane. I'm doing my best try and keep people's feet on the ground. Um, going back to an earlier rant about congressional hearings and referring criminal charges, um, I saw somebody ask about, well, what about the new hearings that are going to happen with Republican House? It'll be the same thing. They'll recommend, depending on who they're recommending charges against, if it's someone that Jack Smith is already investigating as part of a special counsel, then let's say a House a house hearing recommends charges against someone that someone that Jack Smith is already investigating then, or an event that he's investigating, then what they recommend is going to go to him. If it's not something that that he's investigating, then a a criminal referral from a Republican led um, panel or hearing or committee or whatever would just go to DOJ in general, I would think. Not trying to present myself as an expert on this. I'm just saying that's my understanding. Is that's that's what would happen. It would be good to look up how many times have a how many times has a congressional committee recommended criminal charges against someone and it actually happened. It'd be it'd be a good I should probably look that up at some point. Okay. I want to go back to this tweet because I did something based off of this tweet that I don't often do. Mm. Is that right? Is that right? I see a link right here in chat from Howard76. Let me see this. Breaking, our election case is going to trial. Katie Hobbs attempted to have our case thrown out, and it failed. She will have to take the stand and testify. Heck yeah. All right, well, we're pausing the show so that I can go ahead and share this everywhere, of course, because this is awesome. Awesome, awesome. That is some great news. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, everyone. That is awesome. Okay, let me uh, kill this right here. That is awesome. Bear with me. I'm see you got. I'm gonna. Lo- I'm sharing this on all the socials that I'm on because that's some of the best news I've heard all day. Boom. (laughs) Glenn Oak. (laughs) Thank you very much for the rumble rant. Buy the boys some water guns from Santa. Hey, that's not a bad idea. That's, that's a little cold outside for water guns right now, but that's a, that's a good idea. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I will spend it on the boys. I, I, I'll make you that promise. I will spend that money on the boys. Um, okay. 
Oh, that feels good, guys. That feels good. That's going to... Okay, we'll see. You know I'm going to be covering it now. You know I'm going to cover this. Oh, man. I'm going to... Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to devote a huge chunk of my my attention to following this case. This is going to be excellent. Mm. Okay. I did something that I don't often do. Um and I don't I don't know how many of my audience are followers of the drops or believe there's anything about the drops that are credible. I'm sure it's most of you. Um, but I do want to say before I dig into this that, um, and I don't really consider it a decode, uh, but I do want to say that I, I do think the drops are legit and I think that there's a legit team that is close to Trump and that Trump is involved with who put out the Q drops. Um, but I also think a huge amount of what we get out of the drops is up to us and what we discern from them. And I don't think there's any really wrong way necessarily to go about analyzing the drops. There's just information in them and you can study that information and ask questions about it and use it to look at other things. Um, I think you can learn a lot from the drops, but I think there's a lot of bad decodes out there. And I think there's a lot of people who have made bad predictions based off of them. And I don't want to make predictions based off of the drops. There are things in them that I think uh, forecast or, um, point to something that is going to have things that will happen in the future. But I don't hang on dates. I don't hang on uh, certain things about the predictions. Um, I'm just saying it's, it's open for everybody's interpretation in my opinion. And um, when I look at them, I try and analyze them from a couple different points of view. And one thing that's really stood out to me today is that the January 6th committee keyed in on this tweet from exactly two years ago today. So again, I'm not trying to make this a decode. I'm just, I'm literally saying for your consideration, like I wrote right here, just for your consideration. I noticed these things between this tweet that Donald Trump put out on December 19th, exactly two years ago, today that the January 6th committee keyed in on and used it to, uh, as part of their case against Trump. And these are the things I noticed. So make of it what you will. This first, this tweet right here, December 19th, and it mentions 36 page and it mentions statistically impossible. Well, one, there are many drops that were posted on December 19th in 2017, 2018, 2019. This one from Newsweek posted exactly five years ago today says same day coincidence. And it mentions this Newsweek article that says Trump could use military to launch his own coup warns former white house ethics lawyer. Well, what's in the news right now? Their news is, is that the January 6th committee has accused Trump officially of trying to use the military and use MAGA as a means of launching his own coup. And you could also point to the calm before the storm type thing, but 
interesting that exactly five years ago today, this exact thing that was going on in the news right now is in this drop. Same day. Is that a coincidence? Up to you to decide. Three years ago, exactly to the day, it mentions this drop right here, which talks about 36 times Trump and QAnon have posted on a zero delta, meaning at the exact same time on the board, Q posted, and down to the second, Trump tweeted, and there was, they, they tweeted and posted on the board at the exact same time, 36 times. So how can that be considered a coincidence? Greatest statistical anomaly witnessed, or is it something else? Again, it mentioned 36, which if we scroll back to this tweet, what does this tweet mention? It mentions 36 and statistically impossible. One of the things I've talked about before is that when I look at drops and I look for how they might connect to current events or news stories or whatever, is I look for at least three connections. Um, I want to hit, I want to hit three, three things like a date, a subject matter, um, a name, a keyword. I want three points of contact. Um, if you've been watching my show for a while, you know that that's, that's how I operate. That's how I personally prov- try and um, prevent myself from going too far and stretching too far with making a connection with a Q drop is I'm looking for three points of contact. Well, this right here for today, December 19th, 36, statistically impossible. This drop right here, December 19th, 36, statistical anonym- anomaly. That's three points of contact in my book. Next drop, December 19th. This is probably my favorite one I pulled out. This is from exactly three years ago, and it says, Friend, patriot, hold your head up high. POTUS was not harmed in any way today other than on paper, the history books. Well, man, that sure sounds like what's going on right now, doesn't it? There's a a post-it note sent from January 6th committee to DOJ saying, indict Trump for this stuff, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just a piece of paper. Seems to connect to me. Now, the rest of it says, sometimes you must sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Quote, I will gladly take all those slings and arrows for you, signed POTUS. But even that can be undone. The enormity of what is coming will shock the world. Pray, Q. I love that drop. And I feel like it certainly connects to what happened today. Now, the last two are from 2018. December 19th is the only thing they really have in common is just the date, but they say this is not another four-year election. Listen very carefully. Power return to the people. Long-term solutions. Panic. The next one says D-Day, Patriots. We will have our country back Q+, which means Trump wrote it. Now, 
I don't want to see our side in panic. And I don't really see our side in panic. I see our opponents in panic. And I see that we have some long-term solutions for dealing with our opponents in front of us, such as reforming our election systems and investigating the rot that is in Congress and in the FBI and in other other agencies. Um, but 2020 was not another four-year election. Now, some people might take this to mean the 2018 midterms, the year this was written, and maybe it did. But we all know that we're in a process right now, and hopefully like DAC 8869 and Rumble Chat, you're comfy AF, like I am. And this this is why, you know, like having this long-term view, This is why I conclude the, my shows by saying we're not going to win every battle, but we're going to win this war. I'm not, I'm not comfy because I'm full of hopium. I'm comfy because I'm counting the wins and I'm looking at traje- trajectories and I'm noticing the swamp draining and I'm noticing things go our way. Not everything, but a lot of things, enough that gives me hope every day and gets me up it helps me sleep at night and gets me up the next day. And I know, I know that Donald Trump was not a phase that our country went through. <laughs> it wasn't just a, he wasn't just a phase. And I know that he's grown beyond a person. As I've talked about before, especially on defected, he is a he's an idea now. The idea of Trump has gotten into all of us. It's gotten into our country, and there's no amount of BS that can come from a committee like the January 6th committee or from CNN or from anybody else that is going to undo that idea. Or that is going to take that idea from us. You can't get that idea of Trump out of me. And they can't get it out of you either. And what's really funny is they can't get the idea of Trump out of their heads. <laughs> Which is why they're panicking. And they're doing silly things. They're making errors. Now, I'm not of the opinion that... Anyway, that's my, uh, that's my little, I don't like calling it a decode. I really don't. I don't like, I don't think of this as a decode. Um, it's just something I've noticed. And if you consider it and you, you enjoyed this dig right here, well, well, I'm glad you did. Um, I know that a lot of people think that Trump will be indicted there's the special Biden's in charge, Merrick Garland's at DOJ, Chris Ray's at FBI, special counsel Jack Smith is doing his investigation. Um, excuse me, J6 committee just recommended these charges against Trump. They're out to get him. But I don't believe that. And 
I planted my flag on that. I talked about last time on Defected that I don't believe Trump will be arrested. I don't, I don't even believe that DOJ is actually after Trump, um, for one. But let's say, let's say it happens. Okay. I have, I've explained over and over again my reasons for not believing that Trump will be arrested. So I'm not going to go into it, go into them again on this show. But let's just say it does happen that Trump is indicted. I'll eat that plate of crow. I'll admit that I got that one wrong. And then I'll go right back to being comfy again because I know that Trump has this gamed out. I know that he does. I know that he has it gamed out. And I know that he has the best people alongside him. And I know that there are many, many, many patriots that are in DOJ, that are in the FBI, that are on Team Trump. And whatever happens with it, I know it's going to work out. I just, I just know it. I, I just, it's not even based on the drops. It's just based on watching Trump operate and looking at who's around him and looking at the, the landscape and the, 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 the entire battlefield that we're on. I just know that it'll, it'll work out. I don't think it's going to happen at all. I don't believe it. But if it does, I'll just have to admit I'm wrong and, or I got that one wrong. And, oh, I was a little bit too optimistic on that one. But guess what? I'm still opti- I'm still just as optimistic. <laughs> so Yeah. I don't it doesn't even bother me. Now, uh Miss Lori just brought up precedent setting. Yeah, you know, I've seen people say, look, that it's going to set a precedent if that happens. Yeah, it definitely would set a precedent. In my opinion, it's not a precedent that needs to be set. Um because, for example, the 11th Circuit in the special master case already ruled that you can't treat a former president different from what you, how you treat any other citizen. So, so that set the precedent right there, and that was on a much smaller thing such as the special master, or it was on the special master, and it was on Trump suing in response to the search warrant served on Mar-a-Lago. So to me, the precedent has already been set. The ruling's already been made. The, the, the law has already been enforced. And if you know, if we, we already know this, it didn't actually need to be set, but it's good that it was because it prevents Hillary and others from having to go through the motions, um, and wasting DOJ's time in the future. We already know that everybody should be treated equally under the law and there shouldn't be special privileges for people regardless of what office they've, they've served in. Now, is that always the case? Of course not. Of course not. The justice system doesn't always get it right. Of course. But I don't think the precedent needs to be set in order for the rest of the swamp to be drained and for the witch hunt to complete, to be completed with the arrest of Hillary Clinton or anybody else around her, Mark Elias, Christopher Steele, all the, all the rest, all the rest. Um, the precedents that need to be set have a lot to do with carrying out the investigation and going through going through the steps needed to gather the evidence needed to bring those indictments, such as breaking down attorney-client privilege um, and things like that. So that's 
that's where I'm at on it, although I can appreciate why some people say, no, it's going to be better if Trump is actually indicted and gets out of it. Um, I disagree about that. I think it's far too risky of a plot line. If you want to think about it that way, I think it's I think it's too risky. Um, not to Trump, but risky to MAGA. If you catch my drift. Um, I think there's some people who won't be able to handle it. And I think it's set. I think it gives the deep state here. Let's put it this way. I think it gives the deep. If Trump is indicted, I think it gives the deep state in the swamp too many opportunities for false flags. It gives them a pretense to set up so many more false flags worse than January 6th. That's one of the main reasons why I don't like it is because I think it carries with it inherent danger. Um, So, yeah, I don't think it's needed and I think it's dangerous in that respect. So those are, that's my opinion on, on that path. I don't think it will happen. So got some more rumble rants, man. Y'all are really generous tonight. Thank you very much. Jen Santa Monica. Love your show. Thank you very much, Jen. Much appreciated. R Terrell again. I know people might think this is a stretch, but I'm standing by my original take, which is we will have a redo election by end of first quarter. Arizona trial is big. Maladministration of 2020 dropped 26, 28. I would love for you to be right, but I, I would love for you to be right. Arizona, I'll, I'll go. I think what Carrie Lake is asking for in her case is reasonable, which is a redo just in Maricopa County. I think that's reasonable relief. Um, so I could I can definitely see that happening. More than that, I don't know. Um, it's difficult for me to see that happening. It really is. But I if it I'm not going to be upset if it does. Of course, that would be that'd be great. Um. Then there was one more. Uh, L Jenkins thirteen man. Thank you so much. They say, thank you so much for everything. I only watch you in Badlands for my news, and thank you for your help and understanding. Merry Christmas. Well, yeah, Merry Christmas. Thank you very much, Jenkins, L. Jenkins. That is very generous of you, and I I appreciate it so much. Um, <laughs> y'all y'all overwhelm me. Uh, I can't I can't believe any of y'all want to listen to my thoughts on stuff. I'm just a I'm just a f- former bowling alley mechanic. He likes to read a bunch and then talk about what I read. Um, thank you guys very much. Let me um, let me switch on over here and go to the next thing. We had some Durham news and it kind of flew under the radar. There's so much stuff happening and it wasn't direct Durham news. It wasn't directly Durham, but It is Durham news, and I called it the Durham effect in my post on social media about it because it's this is the effect of Durham. Oh, man, here we go. Here we go. All right, I'm going to show everybody a trick here. I'm going to show everybody a trick because I failed to grab, to bookmark the archive version of this. Okay, let me move this on my screen. Everybody's going to learn something now. If you don't know this, you're going to learn it now. So if you come upon a, uh, a 
dish rag such as the Washington Post, who occasionally is worth reading because it does contain information. You just got to put your filter on and sift through the information that it contains. If you come upon a dish rag like the Washington Post and it throws up this subscription thing and won't let you read the article, has a paywall of some sort, what you do is you save the URL up here, copy the URL, go to archive. And it can be, there's a couple different, it's archive.today is the website, but it resolves to a number of different addresses, archive MD, archive PH, archive IS. There's a bunch of different URLs that it resolves to, but archive today is the main site. Just be aware it may resolve to a different ending here. What you do is you take that URL and you paste it down here in the blue box the blue box is going to search for a web page that's already been saved by someone such as me because I saved this page earlier. Here it is 15th December. I did that. And there you go. Now you can read the whole thing. It works for almost all websites, news websites, and this is a really good trick to learn and it'll save you from having to give money to an outfit like the Washington Post, and you're doing a favor to researchers because you're archiving the website so that others can find an archived version of it later in case the the website decides to delete it or change what they wrote because they got something wrong, etc. This is a really good thing to learn to do. If this hadn't been already archived, you could have, but what happened after you searched is it would come right back to this page and it would automatically put the URL in this red box, which then allows you to hit save. And it'll save the archive for you and or the website for you, it'll archive it for you, and it'll be right there for you to read. Okay. And you'll have done a service to the research community. All right. Durham News. Senator seeks FTC probe of data sales to U.S. government agencies. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, a Democrat, cites evidence from the prosecution of Democratic lawyer Michael Sussman to suggest the company breached users' privacy. In a letter dated Thursday and shared with the Washington Post, Wyden cited a paragraph entered into the record in the Justice Department's prosecution of Democratic lawyer Michael Sussman stipulating that companies associated with a longtime industry entrepreneur had sold such information directly to government agencies where it had classified contracts. Let's read that letter. The To the Honorable Lena Kahn, Chair, Federal Trade Commission. Dear Chair Kahn, I write to request that the Federal Trade Commission investigate, drumroll, New Star Security Services. That's right, New Star. Rodney Joffe's corrupt, crooked, swampy company. This is a Democrat asking the FTC to investigate Rodney Joffe's company, New Star, and their sale of Americans' internet metadata to Department of Defense-funded research project at the Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech. Those researchers, in turn, repeatedly searched this data at the request of the Department of Justice and other government agencies. For several years, Newstar knowingly sold sensitive Internet metadata, which it presumably obtained from unwitting consumers. 
some of these consumers may have been promised that their data would not be sold to third parties. Newstar did not take sufficient steps to warn consumers that it no longer intended to honor these promises and as such appears to have engaged in business practices substantially similar to those that the FTC has previously argued violated the FTC Act. Newstar collects information about which websites its consumers visit as part of its recursive domain name system, which service, which looks up the domain name that a user is trying to access, such as FTC gov and connects it to a specific IP address. Companies that provide recursive DNS services receive extremely sensitive information from their users, which many Americans would want to remain private from third parties, including government agencies acting without court order. For example, Knowing that a user visited the website of the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, the National Domestic Violence Lifeline, or Power to Decide's Abortion Service Finder, or fi- Abortion Finder Service, can all reveal deeply personal and private information about a person. As the Wall Street Journal described earlier this year, starting in the fall of 2016, Newstar began selling DNS data to a DOD-funded research team at Georgia Tech. Emails obtained by the press and activists from Georgia Tech under Georgia's Open Records Act document the sale of data under a five-year, nearly $2 million contract. Newstar has refused to answer questions about its sale of this data, but in September, in a September 8, 2022 briefing with my staff, said that it does not currently sell DNS data. After my staff attempted to confirm in writing the statements Newstar representatives made during this briefing, Newstar's counsel responded on September 16th, 2022, by email that their company, quote, does not sell DNS data to governments, including the United States government. Georgia Tech emails confirmed that this DNS data was not solely used for academic research. The emails include several communications between the researchers who purchased the data in both the FBI and DOJ indicating that government officials asked the researchers to run specific queries and that the researchers wrote affidavits and reports for the government describing their findings. The publicly released emails referencing these DOJ requests for assistance do not indicate whether they were accompanied by a warrant. My office has repeatedly requested information about the DOJ's request for DNS data from Georgia Tech, but the DOJ has refused to provide my staff with any information. However, federal government agencies have repeatedly argued that the Fourth Amendment does not apply to data government purchases. In addition to Newstar's well-documented sale, by the way, DOJ ain't responded because Durham is looking at it. In addition to Newstar's well-documented sale of data to Georgia Tech, recent court testimony suggests that former Newstar executive Rodney Joffe, who led the company's efforts to sell data to Georgia Tech, was also involved in the sale of DNS data directly to the U.S. government. During the recent criminal prosecution of another individual, federal prosecutors and the defense agreed to a stipulated statement that was entered into the court record. They're talking about Durham, and they're talking about the trial of Michael Sussman. Quote, Rodney Joffe and certain companies with which he was affiliated, including officers and employees of those companies, have provided assistance to and received payment from multiple agencies in the United States government. This has included assistance to the United States intelligence community and law enforcement agencies on cybersecurity matters. 
Certain of those companies have maintained, maintained contracts with the United States government, resulting in payment by the United States of tens of millions of dollars for the provisions of, among other things, domain name system data. These contracts include classified contracts that require company personnel to maintain security clearances. Newstar's sale of DNS data may have been deceptive business practices. Representatives from Newstar told my staff during a September 8th, 2022 briefing that the only user-level DNS data that the company holds comes from users of recursive DNS services provided by the company. As such, the data that Newstar sold to Georgia Tech likely included data generated by users of the free recursive DNS service that Newstar had long offered to the public. While Newstar had since at least 2013, included language in its privacy policy indicating that it did not share data with third parties. The FTC has made it clear that disclosures of the practices that materially impact consumer privacy must be prominently disclosed to consumers and that the disclosures and privacy policies are insufficient. As the FTC noted in Sears Holding in 2009, blah, 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 the data that Newstar sold to Georgia Tech may have also included data collected from consumers who were explicitly promised that their data would not be sold. Between 2018 and 2020, Newstar acquired a competing DNS service, VeriSign. That service has been advertised to the public by VeriSign with unqualified promises that their, your public DNS data will not be sold to third parties. When the product changed hands, user of VeriSign service were seemingly transitioned to DNS servers that Newstar controlled. It is unclear if the data Newstar sold to Georgia Tech included data from users who had been promised by VeriSign that their data would not be sold. This is because Newstar and VeriSign have refused to answer questions from my office. Scanning. However, both companies cited their issuance of a press release and post on their respective websites as sufficient notice. Consumers using VeriSign's free DNS service had no reason to regularly check the company's website as long as their DNS service kept working. Indeed, the FTC has made it clear that privacy promises to consumers must be honored, blah, 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 blah. They cite Radio Shack's bankruptcy of 2015. Regardless of whether the data Newstar sold included data from users who originally signed up when the service was offered to VeriSign, it is clear that Newstar sold DNS data for millions of dollars to researchers at Georgia Tech. If this data was obtained from Newstar customers, then it appears that Newstar failed to sufficiently warn customers. Now, signed Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat of Oregon, um, I know it's not the most exciting thing necessarily, but this happened because of John Durham. <laughs> this is the John Durham effect. And there's, I'm sure there's going to be more of it. There's going to be more of it. This stipulated statement right here from Rodney Joffe about new star. Um, you know, is this right here going to result in criminal charges against someone? No, I don't think so. But you have a Democrat that is saying, oh, this company, I'm, I'm going to go after this company. I'm going to alert the FTC to this. And good. Just death by a thousand paper cuts, right? 
So this is good. And I bet it's not the only thing happening. I'm, there might be more, there probably are more stories that I've missed. Um, that have to do with stuff like this that came out of the Sussman trial, which was marketed by so many as being a complete failure. And so many people blackpilled over, but it's things like this that they don't happen immediately, but they do happen and you have to search it out. And yeah, it's good news. Take the win. All right, let me plug this real quick. Benson Honey Farms, they are one of the, uh, or they're the company that I've partnered for with this show. Um, the owners are good MAGA patriots, and they're also fans of this show. And they send me honey. I keep a bit, I have a big jar like this. In fact, I need to order another one. And then I have this small jar right here that I refill, this little squeeze bottle. I love all the products here. I've used them all. Their barbecue sauce, their candy, their honey sticks. Um, I ate all the can candy that I had. They also have some air fresheners, and they sent me one that is for me. There, I think it that's new car leather. Mine is vanilla and tobacco or something like that. Um, it's really good. I don't see it listed here, but the one I got, I like. Uh, I like everything I've had from this store. If you're interested in some barbecue sauce or some just seriously, just honey, that's all it is, is honey. Um, nothing added to it. it is delicious. We don't use corn syrup in this house. If we can avoid it, we use honey instead to sweeten things like put it on our waffles and pancakes and stuff like that. Um, I love these products. If you're interested in something like this, please use rep code just human because what that does is it helps my show out and you also get some really sweet product delivered to you. Just 100% raw honey. It's delicious. BensonHoneyFarms.com. It's BensonHoneyFarms.com. And the rep code is just human. Okay. I covered these things right here. What time is it? You've been going for an hour and 15 minutes. Minutes. Excellent. Let me do this topic right here and then we'll take a short break and then we'll do the Twitter files. The candy is awesome. I, my, I gotta say, I mean, the, the honey of course is, is delicious and I love it, but the soap that they make and the candy are my favorite products from them. Um, they're just, I mean, I ate all the candy, the candy is so good. And the soap, the soap is excellent. All right. So it was reported a couple days ago that SBF is going to drop his opposition to extradition. The question is whether he's going to seek a plea deal, including a deal to protect his parents. Looking at a fraud count at 20 years of pop, remember his maximum sentence is 115 years. And he's likely facing conviction. He's going to get convicted. He might try to negotiate something that would protect his parents and get, he might try and get a plea deal. I mean, it makes sense that he would. And honestly, look at this guy. Do you think he's really going to, you know, try and fight the system? Um, 
I think he's going to try and get things as easy as he possibly can. So he had an extradition hearing today. And during that extradition hearing, well, actually, let me tell you, he's where he's at. This prison that he's at is called Fox Hill, and it's infamous for being a bug and rat infested prison. He's supposedly in a cell with a bunch of other people and there's like no room whatsoever. Like you can reach your arms out and touch either wall and there's metal beds. He's in a, he's in a prison that, that is unlike anything that we have in the U S it's a pretty bad place to be is my understanding. There's been some documentaries about this prison and how terrible it is. And that's where this guy is at and has been for the past week. Um, he did say he wasn't he had an extradition hearing and the reporting was that it's it was bizarre because at first they said they were going to have the hearing to uh waive his extradition and he was going to agree to be extradited to the US and then his lawyer showed up and said they didn't know what was going on or why they were there or something and then i also found out that there's a group of bit of a uh, crypto investors who have like filed a petition or something in the Bahamas telling them don't extradite this guy. You actually haven't charged him with everything you should. There's another $30 million or so of property in the Bahamas that this guy owns that you guys neglected to include in the indictment. So there's this group of crypto people who are in the Bahamas and they're trying to prevent him from being extradited just yet until like 30 something million dollars worth of property are added to one or more of the indictments because otherwise he's going to get indicted and that stuff is going to, he's still going to own it or something. Uh, but anyway, they're getting in the way of his indictment and they're quite happy with them or of his extradition. And they're quite happy with themselves because they're glad this guy is in this terrible Fox Hill prison. Um, but later on they had another hearing and that this is the van that's carrying around this armored van. Um, and they, at the second hearing they had, they agreed to the U S extradition. Um, now I don't know when it's going to happen. It's uh, let me see. Yeah, there's no, there's no information on when it will happen. He agreed. They came back to court and they agreed that he would be extradited. Yeah. So, there could be some gamesmanship going on here, you know, where they showed up to the hearing, his lawyers did, and Sam did, and they were ostensibly going to be agreeing to an extradition, and then they get into the courtroom and they, they're they like, ah, we don't know what's going on here, we're not ready to do this. So they leave, and maybe some more negotiating took place with U.S. prosecutors, and so they come back later in the day and agree to be extradited. I think there's some... There's some gamesmanship going on here where Sam's side is trying to get the beginnings of a plea deal worked out. Um, that's just my speculation, but that's what I think. I don't know if the HQ line, I don't know if the property is in his parents' names or not. Um, I just know that I saw, I ran across these, these crypto people on Twitter who were 
very pleased with themselves that Sam, that first hearing went the way it did. Let me see if I can find them real quick. I don't remember the guy's name is one thing. No, I don't have it. Okay. Anyway, so he's going to be extradited and good. Good. Get him here to the U.S. and let's get him. I don't. I don't really want him to get a plea deal because I want a trial to happen so that we learn all sorts of really, really juicy things. But um, I don't really blame. It, I hope they get a good plea deal. Like from DOJ's side. I hope DOJ gets a plea deal where he gives up a whole bunch of people that were involved in this, you know? So maybe, maybe that'll happen. Um, I definitely don't mind him being in a terrible prison for a while, but I also don't have like, I don't hate this guy or anything. Uh, what I really want is for him to give up enough information that it results in a whole bunch of other swamp monsters being caught, you know? So if that's, if that's what happens, then great. That's great. All right, let's take a short break here and we will refill our coffee cups or whatever it is that you guys are having. And um, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Twitter files. There's a lot to go through. Definitely going to be another hour or so of this show tonight. So let's do a three to five minute intermission and we'll come back and get some music started here. There we No, that's not what I want. That's not what I want. I want this, I think. There you go. Intermission. See you in a few minutes.
All right, welcome back. I decided that since it's an evening show and it's so late, I would switch to beer. My wife brought me a uh, a coconut porter from a local brewery, a local microbrewery that's really good, and so that's what I'm going with. We're going to back up a bit on the Twitter files. I know there was new stuff today, but there's also stuff that came out, I believe it was on Friday. So I haven't had an opportunity to cover it. So we're going to back up to Twitter Twitter files part six. In fact, I'm kind of thinking about, I've been, I, I kind of want to do a, uh, or upload some clips of me reading the Twitter files to rumble on my clips channel. Like just one by one, do a reading of each thread and the supplement and record that, make a video of that and make it a clip and put it on my clips channel. Um, if you'd be interested in that, let me know. Um, I'm not really thinking of doing it as like, everybody's going to want to see it, but it's more like memorializing it, um, in a video format. Uh, so when people search for it, what got me thinking about it was, um, over the weekend, I was listening to the Mueller report. I was listening to, uh, I found a recording on YouTube of people reading the Mueller report and I appreciated it that I could like do stuff around the house while I was listening to these people read the Mueller report to me. And the reason I won't get into why I was listening to it. I, I just wanted to refresh on it because of some other stuff I was reading and it made me think about these Twitter threads. And I was like, I wonder if I, I wonder if I should uh, read these and record these as a video as like a, and then like put it on my clips channel. And anyway, if you, th- if you think that's a good idea, let me know. I'm, I'm thinking about it. It'd be time consuming. I wouldn't stream it. I would just do a recording of it as I could. And then, and then po- post it. So, um, anyway, Cheers to you guys. Got a, uh, it's in my Guinness, one of my Guinness glasses, but, uh, it's a lovely day for a coconut porter. Okay. Twitter files, part six, we're going to go back to December 16th and we'll just see how far we get. I think it's important to cover this last these last pieces of, of the Twitter files because like together, because they're all dealing with FBI involvement in, um, in Twitter. And so I want to have them as I want to present them together. If I, if I can, this is the one I mentioned on defected. Um, and that we talked about briefly. All right. So this is from Matt Taibbi. Um, the, yeah, part six, the Twitter files, part six, Twitter, this FBI subsidiary. The Twitter files are revealing more every day about how the government collects, analyzes, and flags your social media content. Oh, yeah, I need to show you guys what I'm reading. What the heck? There we go. I need to show you guys what I'm reading. Golly. Here we go. Matt Taibbi thread, the Twitter files, part six, Twitter, the FBI subsidiary. The Twitter files are revealing more every day about how the government collects, analyzes, and flags your social media content. 
Twitter's contact with the FBI was constant and pervasive as if it were a subsidiary. Between January 2020 and November 2022, there were more than 150 emails between the FBI and former Twitter and trust Twitter and tr- Twitter trust and safety chief Yoel Roth. That guy's really become a bad, like a villain. He's become a villain in this whole story. So that's two years, right? January, November. Let's just round it to two years. So that's 2020, 2021, 2022. So that's 50 emails per year, right? 50 emails per year between the FBI and Yoel Roth. Some are mundane, like San Francisco agent Elvis Chan wishing Roth a happy new year, along with a reminder to attend, quote, our quarterly call next week. Others are requests for information into Twitter, uh, Twitter users related to active investigations. But a surprisingly high number are requests by the FBI to Twitter to take action on election misinformation even involving joke tweets from low follower accounts. God is with us over on Foxhole. Thank you very much for the cookie. Much appreciated. You say you would be interested in the clips. Thank you. The FBI social media focus task force known as FTIF, F-T-I-F, created in the wake of the 2016 election, swelled to 80 agents and corresponded with Twitter to identify alleged foreign influence and election tampering of all kinds. Federal intelligence and law enforcement reach into Twitter, included the Department of Homeland Security, which partnered with security contractors and think tanks to pressure Twitter to moderate content. It's no secret the government analyzes bulk data for all sorts of purposes, everything from tracking terror suspects to making economic forecasts. The Twitter files show something new. Agencies like the FBI and DHS regularly sending social media content to Twitter through multiple entry points, pre-flagged for moderation. What stands out is the sheer quantity of reports from the government. Some are aggregated from public hotlines. An unanswered question, do agencies like the FBI and DHS do in-house flagging work themselves? Or do they farm it out? Quote, you have to prove to me that inside the fucking government, you can do any kind of massive data or AI search, says one former intelligence officer. Hello, Twitter contacts. The master canine quality or master canine quality of the FBI's relationship to Twitter comes through in this November 2022 email in which FBI San Francisco is notifying you it wants action on these four accounts. And here we have an email from Thursday, November 10th, 2022. And it says, hello, Twitter contacts. FBI San Francisco is notifying you of the below accounts, which may potentially constitute violations of Twitter's terms of service for any action or inaction deemed appropriate appropriate within Twitter policy. This is after Elon has purchased Twitter. List the four accounts, which I don't recognize any of them, but best regards, Fred at the FBI San Francisco office. Twitter personnel in that case went on to look for reasons to suspend all four accounts, including at Froma, whose tweets are almost always jokes. 
but they were labeled civic misinformation. November 10th, 2022, so hours later. Thanks, Patrick. I've escalated to GET for a first pass. FBI folks, I've reviewed this already from the TD perspective and suspended three of the accounts for multi-account abuse and ban evasion violations. Rodrigo, could you please review from MA for possible civic information civic misinformation or direct to the appropriate part of GET for their review. Thanks, Patrick. And let me, let's look at these tweets. This is from MA or from a, from MA, I think is their handle. Um, it wasn't capitalized here. I want to remind Republicans to vote tomorrow, Wednesday, November 9th. So it's the classic joke of, this party votes on this day. The other party votes on a different day, which of course is inaccurate. It's, it is misinformation. I mean, we all can understand that it is misinformation. A lot of people say that jokingly, and there's been people who've gotten in trouble for it because it's not true. And it, if you don't say that it's a joke, then, you know, I don't want to say it's a crime, <laughs> but it is misinformation. Like literally it's misinformation proposed container ship. If there's a worldwide recession. So that's obviously a joke. Just to show the FBI can be hyper intrusive in both directions. They also asked Twitter to review a blue leaning account for a different joke, except here it was even more obvious that Claire Foster PhD who kids a lot was kidding. Here's the email. Hello, Twitter contacts. FBI San Francisco is notifying you of the below activities that which may constitute or potentially may potentially constitute violations of Twitter's terms of service. For any action or inaction deemed appropriate within your policy. Thank you, Catherine. It shows a Twitter post by user Byram underscore Wade. Display name Ultra MAGA stating the following Americans vote today. Democrats, you vote Wednesday 9th. So the opposite of what the previous one was. That's the same misinformation joke. Twitter account Claire Foster PhD claimed in her post that she is a ballot counter in her state and an additional post states for every negative comment on this post. I'm adding another vote for the Democrats. And if you're not wearing a mask, I'm not counting your vote. So that's both a joke from the right and a, I mean, it's not clear that it's a joke from her, but there it is. I'm a ballot counter in my state. If you're not wearing a mask, I'm not counting your vote. Yeah. If anyone who cannot discern obvious satire from reality has no place making decisions for others or working for the Fed, said Claire Foster when told about the flagging. Of the six accounts mentioned in the previous two emails, all but two, Claire Foster and from MA, were suspended. So that means this email up here, these two and Jonathan Wade were suspended, but from an MA was not, and neither was this lady here. In an internal email from November 5th, 2022, 
The FBI's National Election Command Post, which compiles and sends on complaints, sent the San Francisco field office a long list of accounts that may warrant additional action. And here is that list here. Request for coordination with Twitter, ASAC Chan, that's the FBI acting special agent in charge, I believe is what that stands for. He's the same Chan who was interviewed in that Missouri case, by the way. The National Election Command Post, NECP, is requesting assistance from San Francisco regarding coordination with Twitter. Specifically, NECP has made been made aware of tweets by certain accounts that they may warrant additional action due to the accounts being utilized to spread misinformation about the upcoming election. Specifically, NECP is requesting the following. One, coordination between San Francisco and Twitter to determine whether the accounts identified below have violated Twitter's terms of service and may be subject to any action deemed appropriate to the issuance and preservation of letters regarding the accounts identified below in order to preserve subscriber information and content information pending the issuance of legal process. Three, any location information associated with the accounts that Twitter will voluntarily voluntarily Provide to aid the FBI in assigning any follow-up deemed necessary to the appropriate FBI field office. Twitter accounts, and it lists all of these accounts right here. Now, the one that really stands out to me is RSBN. They have RSBN on here. Please let us know if you need additional information to process this request by replying to this email. And again, this email is from November 6, 2022. The FBI asking Twitter to take a look at RSBN network. Well, that's kind of a RSB network, right side broadcasting network. Agent Chan passed the list on to his Twitter folks. Please see the below list of Twitter accounts, which we believe are violating your terms of service by disseminating false information about the time, place, or manner of the upcoming elections. Let us know if you decide to take any actions against these accounts based on our tipper to you. I wonder who the tipper was. Also, let us know if we need to issue a preservation letter as we attend to serve legal process for these accounts. Twitter then replied with its list of actions taken. Note mercy shown to actor Billy Baldwin. Hi, Elvis. That'd be Elvis Chan, the the ASAC FBI guy. Elvis, thank you for your patience as our team assessed the accounts that you flagged. We've completed our review and taken the following actions on some of the accounts. Permanently suspended for private policy violations, such as ban evasion, platform manipulation, excessive misinformation strikes. And then it lists some accounts. Temporarily suspended for spam behaviors is this account. And had tweets bounced for civic misinformation policy violations. Bounced means they deleted them, I believe. And then here's the rest. RSBN is not listed here. In any of, yeah, RSBN is not listed. In regards to your questions about preservation letter, is a good way to ensure that the data hasn't been purged from our system before legal process if, is filed. Externally, the contact for submitting those is the same. Thank you, Patrick. Many of the above accounts were satirical in nature. Nearly all, with the exception of Baldwin and RSB Network, were relatively low engagement, and some were unsuspended or were suspended, most with generic thanks Twitter letter. 
and we have a, all these suspended. When to, yeah, okay. When told of the FBI flagging, Lexi Tola, one of those accounts, replied, quote, my thoughts initially include one, seems like prima facie 1A violation. Two, holy cow, me, an account with the reach of an amoeba three, which with the reach of an amoeba. Three, what else are they looking at? I can't believe the FBI is policing jokes on Twitter. That's crazy, said Tiberius 444. In a letter to former Deputy General Counsel and former top FBI lawyer Jim Baker on September 16, 2022, legal exec Stacia Cardia outlines results from her soon-to-be weekly meeting with DHS, DOJ, FBI, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. From Stacia Cardia, election... The subject line is Elections Work, Wednesday, September 16th of 2022. Jim Baker, please see below for summary of elections-related work I completed today, Wednesday, September 16th. Government Industry Sync, SYNC, I participated in our monthly and soon-to-be weekly 90-minute meeting with FBI, DOJ, DHS, ODNI, and industry peers on election threats. A few items to note, foreign adversaries are amplifying themes being advanced by domestic actors to undermine the legitimacy of the election. Hey, by the way, guys, this is happening in September 16th. This is right before the Hunter Biden laptop drops. This is right before. So this this helps frame the decisions that Twitter would make in censoring the Hunter Biden laptop. Let me see. Yeah, I need it bigger as well, Miss Lori. Yeah. Okay. Let me, I, that, that's, that'll work right there. All right. Foreign adversaries are amplifying these themes explicitly. I explicitly ask if there were any impediments, impediments with the ability of the government to share classified information or other relevant information with industry. FBI was adamant that no impediments to information sharing exist. I asked if U.S. government was tracking foreign threats related to non-presidential races. Long silence. The government is not tracking interference, foreign interference, or threats related to down-ballot races. DHS has created a chart of key dates in the election process at the state level. They are confirming information with the states this week and should get us a summary chart of key dates next week. Policy tweeted about the meeting without legal review as the only Twitter representative to speak. I raised my disappointment in the lack of my involvement directly to policy comms. It was a missed opportunity to document key points. Project Heron. I met with legal trust and safety and public policy stakeholders to discuss an intervention under consideration regarding labeling election results. I raised concerns about feasibility and I relayed firsthand experience with news media mistakes being a challenging primary season. I separately met with Sam and Matt to discuss worst case scenario planning such as, Hmm. I wonder what in their estimation worst case scenario was, was worst case scenario Trump winning or was it Trump losing and challenging? 
Yeah, I'd really like to know what worst in their view, what was worst case. I bet it Trump it's Trump winning and how they would handle that. But I don't know. Civic integrity labeling. Enforcement of our expanded civic integrity policy begins tomorrow, Thursday, September 17th. I provided feedback on a scenario planning document that includes approving the language by the labels. Okay. Of the labels. Account security upgrades on Thursday, September 17th. Over 2,300 high-risk politicians and journalist accounts will be prompted to upgrade their security settings. Board update. I worked closely with Matthew on additional edits to the board escalations. I handled the following escalations responded to DHS regarding information they provided on a Facebook operation. We found no analogous activity worked with Angela to try to get this terrible impersonation account spewing nine 11 conspiracy theories, impersonating a DCCC staffer whose dad died in nine 11 that is pending Flagged a specific tweet on Illinois use of modems to transmit election results in potential violation of civic integrity policy. Scheduled meeting with Ohio Secretary of State Media Director. Follow up on Dubuque County verification request with Lisa. Solicited additional information from UOL on product functionality and limitations around retweeting labeling content so we can explain to DNC, hey, See that right there? So, Or actually, y'all can't see it because I have it blown up in a way that y'all can't uh, right here. There we go. They want – here, and let me uh, – I'm going to kill my camera for a moment. This line right here towards the bottom, about four rows up from the bottom, solicited additional information from Yoel on product functionality and limitations around retweeting labeled content so we can explain to DNC. That is a dasting sentence right there. Lincoln Project is not pleased their video was labeled under SAMM. Bridget is driving that interaction. Allow listed Don Winslow and Springsteen policy comms in addition to comms work on the security upgrades. I wonder if allow listed means these people are allowed to tweet whatever they want. And that would be Don Winslow and Springsteen. (laughs) I wonder if there's like this allow list where you can just like say whatever you want. And those people got added this DNC thing. We're going to explain. We want to explain to the DNC how we're handling something. Okay. Did you explain anything to the RNC? Was the RNC also involved in this? I doubt it. Next, the Twitter exec writes, she explicitly asked if there were impediments to the sharing of classified information with the industry. The answer, quote, FBI was adamant no impediments to sharing existed. This is one of the most interesting lines of this is, the classified info, although I'm really surprised Matt Taibbi didn't drill in on the DNC thing. Um, what classified information was being shared with Twitter? We, we, the, one of the things that Republicans need to do if they have the balls to conduct the proper oversight and investigation of this is they need to find out what classified information was being shared with Twitter and by whom. 
the bottom of that letter, she lists a series of escalations apparently raised at the meeting, which were already handled, quote unquote. About one, she writes, quote, flagged a specific tweet on Illinois use of modems to transmit election security, election results, impossible violation of the civic integrity policy, which they do not, which they do use that tech in limited circumstances. Another internal letter from January 2021 shows Twitter execs as processing an FBI list of possible volative, violative content. This is from Unified Escalations. The subject is report by FBI on possible violative content. Date is January 5th, 2021. You have been added as a participant. You can track your ticket here. Description, get support. Please see these tweets reported by the FBI as possible violations. Here too, most tweets contain the same get out there and vote Wednesday trope and had low engagement. This is what the FBI spends their time on. From B. Yates, this is our future, guys, and the Dems get full control. If you are in Georgia, you better vote on Wednesday. Ha, ha, ha. In this March 2021 email, an FBI liaison thanks a senior Twitter exec for the chance to speak to you and the team, then delivers a packet of products. Hi, Stacia. It was great speaking with you and the team at Twitter last week. I wanted to flag a few products that were released today and earlier in the week that may be of assistance to Twitter. Let us know if you have any questions. The executive circulates the products, which are really DHS bulletins, stressing the need for greater collaboration between law enforcement and private sector partners. Please see the products the FBI Office of Public Sector just provided us. Please feel free to share with your teams. Russian malign influence use of permissive social media platforms. Heightened domestic violent extremist threat to persist in 2021. And Iranian influence efforts primarily use online tools to target USS, U.S. audiences. Again, these are uh, briefings or memos or whatever from the DHS, their information packets from DHS bulletins, the ubiquity of the 2016 Russian interference story as stated pretext for building out the censorship machine can't be overstated. It's analogous to how nine 11 inspired the expansion of the security state. Office of Intelligence and Analysis, the Department of Homeland Security, Intelligence in Brief, 3rd of March, 2021, Russian malign influence use of permissive social media platforms. We assess that Russian malign influencers probably will increasingly use U.S. social media platforms that offer more permissive operating environments. We base this assessment on the reduced effectiveness of Russian influence operations on established U.S. social media platforms and current Russian proxy activity on these growing U.S. platforms. 3rd of March, 2021. While the DHS is in its products, pans permissive social media for offering operational advantages to Russians, it also explains that domestic violent extremist threat requires addressing information gaps. Information gaps and challenges associated with the individualized nature of radicalization 
could be partially mitigated with increased collaboration, read censorship, between law enforcement, terrorism prevention efforts, and private sector partners. We judge these partnerships would improve our ability to detect changes in DVE trends, domestic violent extremists, DVE trends, and provide early warning of potential attacks. The FBI, in one case, sent over so many possible violative content reports, Twitter personnel congratulated each other in Slack for the, quote, monumental undertaking of reviewing them. Anyone need help reviewing the tweets forwarded in FBI report on possible violative content? This is from November 3rd, 2020. Plus one, we can help on SI. Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020 at 7.39 p.m. Thank you all for all your help. A monumental undertaking. So this is on Election Day 2020 uh, from Insurrection Day, some call it. It makes sense that reporting would be would be peaking on that day, but there were multiple points of entry into Twitter for government flag reports. This letter from Agent Chan to Yoel Roth references Teleporter, a platform through which Twitter could receive reports from the FBI. Friday, October 16th, 2020. From Yoel Roth to Agent Chan. Twitter folks. I just got something off, hot off the press today. Please be on the lookout for a teleporter message from me with two documents to download. Thanks, Elvis. So this is Yoel Roth forwarding it, but it was originally from Elvis Chan. Two documents for them to download. Reports also came from different agencies. Here, an employee recommends bouncing content based on evidence from DHS. Resharing this is it doesn't look like they were actioned yesterday. Given the evidence we received from DHS, et cetera, I'd lean towards batting the URL, meaning making the URL un- unreachable via Twitter and bouncing the videos, to be honest, given the accusations, but relatively low visibility. State governments also flagged content. Twitter, for instance, received reports via the Partner Support Portal, an outlet created by the Central Center for Internet Security, a partner organization to DHS. This is not this is not CISA. This is a different entity. Center for Internet Security. Why was no action taken? Below, Twitter execs receiving an alert from California officials by way of our partner support portal. Debate whether to act on a Trump tweet, and this is the Trump tweet in question from October thirteenth, twenty twenty. California hired a pure Sleepy Joe Democrat firm to count and harvest votes. No way Republicans get a fair shake. Lawyers get started, GOP leader. California is in big trouble. Vote Trump and watch the greatest comeback of them all. Also, New York and Illinois. Go for it. Interesting. Here, a video was reported by the Election Integrity Project at Stanford. Apparently, at the strength of information from the Center for Internet Security, CIS. And if that's confusing, it's because CIS is a DHS contractor, describes itself as partners with cyber and internet security agency, CISA, at the DHS. The EIP 
which is the Election Integrity Project. The EIP is one of a series of government-affiliated think tanks that mass review content, a list that also includes Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Laboratory and the University of Washington Center for Informed Policy. The takeaways that most people think, what most people, this is Matt Taibbi's takeaway, what most people think of as the quote-unquote deep state is really a tangled collaboration of state agencies, private contractors, and sometimes state-funded NGOs. The lines become so blurred as to be meaningless. Twitter file researchers are moving into a variety of new areas now. Watch Barry Weiss and Schellenberger, MD, in this space for more soon. That's the end of Matt Taibbi's Twitter files, part six. Now, what stands out to me about this thing, about part six, was what he noted here, all these different organizations and outfits that are sending Twitter messages and flagging tweets for them, um, saying this is this is misinformation, this goes against your policies. You know, there it's like um basically Twitter has all these hall monitors that are letting them know, you know, there are all these tattletales and whatnot. Um hall monitors is actually a good way to think of it. They're hall monitors for Twitter. And they're sending them these updates. The ones that are, I don't, I don't like it that Atlantic Council and EIP and these other non-government organizations and private contractors are telling Twitter this. I don't like it, but it is what it is. We already, we already knew that Twitter was lefty and all these organizations are lefty and Twitter has all these lefty employees. It's no surprise that this type of thing would be going on. But the problem is government getting involved with this. And I'm sure you guys agree. The big problem is government getting involved with flagging this stuff. The other thing that stands out to me in this thread from Matt is this, that you have the expansion of, excuse me, you have the expansion of the, relationship between government and social media based on the 2016 Russian interference hoax and uh, Spygate, Russiagate nonsense. So because of all that in 2016, you have this relationship that's being established in order to try and prevent another 2016 type thing. And that's, it's like, I think the 9-11 comparison and the Patriot Act and all of that is a pretty good, um, I think it's fairly analogous to the what Matt Taibbi calls here the expansion of the security state. I, I think he's spot on here. I think this is very salient observation by Matt Taibbi here. Um, now, I said on defected, and this was the Twitter follow-up report I was talking about was part six, is that I read this and... I thought the reporting on it was exceeded what this actually showed us because this doesn't show FBI directing things. It shows FBI flagging things. It shows FBI and DHS giving these briefings on, um, especially like Russian interference, um, this stuff right here, this briefing right here. And then, that next one that mentioned uh, what they were looking out for this Russian malign influence stuff. 
Like it didn't show this thread didn't show I didn't I didn't agree with the characterization of Twitter being a subsidiary of the FBI. I don't I don't agree. I think that's too sensationalist or hyperbolic in my opinion, just in my opinion. Um, I don't think the receipts provided in this thread match the headlines that were written last Friday in regards to this thread. And that's what I mentioned on defected last night. And I, it's what I was talking about. I was kind of afraid to give that opinion because so many people read this thread or read excerpts from it and immediately were just, you know, apoplectic. This is horrible. The FBI is, must be dismantled based off of what was in this thread. They're going after joke tweets. And I get why people got upset about it, but I just think it was the reaction to this thread went beyond what was actually provided the substance of this thread. So like some of this stuff is literally misinformation. Like I get it, it's a joke. I totally get it's a joke. But it is literally election misinformation or civic misinformation. It does go against Twitter's policies. And I'm pretty sure it is against the law to tell people to give people the wrong information when it comes to voting. Now, do I think the FBI needed to be involved in taking down this tweet right here? No. No, I don't think that. But I'm not so sure that some of these accounts that were flagged. Well, here, let me say it this way. We don't know what these tweets are that were flagged here. And we don't know who these accounts are. But if you found out that these accounts were actually um, foreigners who are pretending to be American and were instead carrying out an influence operation for either the right or the left. At that point, it makes sense to me the FBI would be involved in flagging them. Because that would be part of a malign influence operation, Right. And that would be the FBI's responsibility to monitor such things and to take action against them when needed, when warranted, right? So that makes sense to me that FBI would be involved in something like that. But we don't have that information that clarifies it that, oh, yeah, um, of these 25 accounts, 15 of them are actually foreigners in another nation who are being paid by an enemy state government to try and spread misinformation and malinformation ahead of a U.S. election. If you have that piece of information, then suddenly this is a horse of a different color, right? So anyway, those are the thoughts I had on this thread. Um, now, the next one, the supplemental. This was December 18th in the evening thread from Matt Taibbi, Twitter file supplemental. I'm guessing this is supplemental to part six. In July of 2020, San Francisco FBI agent Elvis Chan tells Twitter executive Yoel Roth to expect written questions from the Foreign Influence Task Force. So there's, that's, let me just say this again. That's the role of this task force, Foreign Influence Task Force. 
And we were told that at the beginning of the other thread that that was one of the groups involved in this. So it would make sense that some of the stuff being tagged that we saw in that previous thread were probably foreigners pretending to be Americans putting out tweets that were giving inaccurate information or seeking to influence an American election in some way. It doesn't even really, it matters what way, but as far as FBI flagging them, it doesn't matter. It's foreigners trying to interfere in our election. Not that we don't do the same thing in other countries (laughs) and I'm not okay with that either, (laughs) but I'm not okay with foreigners and trying to influence our elections. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) Both both things are wrong. The interagency group that deals with cyber threats, so Foreign Influence task, task Force right here. Okay, and what they said was, hi, Yoel. This is from Elvis. Again, Elvis Chan. I believe FITF would like a response ahead of our meeting the week of August 10th. It can be a written response or we can set up a phone call, whatever is easiest for you. I think you can tell from the nature of the question that there was quite a bit of discussion within the USIC, that would be the United States intelligence community to get clarifications from your company. Let me know how you would like to proceed. So you notice how Yoel Roth, super lefty, woke orange man, bad guy. And then FBI agent Elvis Chan out of San Francisco, who is also a lefty. All this stuff is so much, not all, so much of this stuff is being channeled and arranged through them. I think that's important. I think that's important. The questionnaire's author seemed displeased with Twitter for implying in a July 20th, 2020 briefing from DHS, OD9, FBI, and industry that, quote, you indicated you had not observed much recent activity from official propaganda actors on your platform. You're saying, look, you haven't, you're saying you haven't, Twitter hasn't observed as much of this action or activity as we think you should have observed. During 10th June 2020, working group meeting on election security, you indicated you had not observed much recent activity from official propaganda actors on your platform. To make sure we understand the state media online landscape as much as possible, we hope you would be able to answer some questions about your analysis and conclusions. For context, other sources we are aware of, including those referenced below, indicate state media actors are prolific users of social media, which seems in contrast to your own analysis as we documented it at the time of our discussion. We would appreciate any other information you are willing to provide about your recent conclusions. Bullet point one, in what ways and by what measures do you see official propaganda actors as less active than other groups on your platform? What groups are you comparing to official propaganda actors? What official propaganda actors did you include in your analysis? How do you differentiate? Et cetera, et cetera. What quantitative metrics do you use to judge volume or activity on your platform? On what scale can you provide these metrics? What quantitative metrics do you use to judge? Okay, I read that. What relative weight do you give each metric when judging volume of activity? What qualitative measures do you use to inform judgments about activity, including the volume of activity on your platform? How do you limit the scope of your analysis? Domestic, scam, foreign state, official propaganda, white supremacist actors, date, range, language, et cetera, et cetera. 
and then it lists some references. And the case they're making is you, we think there's more going on on your platform than you guys are realizing. One from back to Matt, uh, back to Matt Taibbi. One would think that that this would be good news. That the but the agencies seem to feel otherwise. Chan underscores this quote: "There was quite a bit of discussion within the U.S. intelligence community to get clarification from your company." The task force demanded to know how Twitter came to its unpopular conclusion. Oddly, it included a bibliography of public resources or public sources, including a Wall Street Journal article attesting to the prevalence of foreign threats as if to show Twitter they got it wrong. Roth, receiving the questions, circulated them with the, with the other company. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to adjust this just a bit. There we go. Yoel Roth said right here in this message, Hi team, the questions we received are attached. I'm frankly perplexed by the questions here, which seem more like something we'd get from a congressional committee than the Bureau. There's a big discussion to be had about state-controlled media, which will be impacted by the label launch later this month. So that would be the launch of their labeling mechanism in 2020 to label things misinformation and stuff, I, I reckon. But I'm not particularly comfortable with the Bureau, and by extension the, the intelligence community, demanding written answers here. What's your perspective or perspective on how best to navigate? Thanks, Yoel. He added he wasn't comfortable with the Bureau and by extension the IC. The idea of the FBI acting as a conduit for the intelligence community is interesting, given that, given that many agencies are barred from domestic operations. Hmm. Let's let that one... Let's marinate on that for a moment. Yeah, that's interesting. He then sent another note internally saying the premise of the questions was flawed because we've been clear that official state propaganda is definitely a thing on Twitter. Note the italics for emphasis. One other follow-up in rereading the doc, the entire premise seems flawed. In our June 2020 briefing, we did not indicate that we, quote, had not observed much recent activity from official propaganda actors on your platform. I re-reviewed my notes from that briefing, and there's a specific item calling out official propaganda outlets as a major factor. And in multiple follow-ups with Elvis, we've been clear that official state propaganda is definitely a thing on Twitter, but that it's different in terms of how we handle it than the clandestine fake accounts. My recommendation is to get on the phone with Elvis ASAP and try to straighten this out. I'm concerned that there's a swirl somewhere in the IC about a statement that may have been fundamentally misunderstood. Would you be okay with me reaching out to Elvis today to try to do that in advance of a more formally engaging with the doc they sent? 
Roth suggested they get on the phone with Elvis ASAP and try to straighten this out to disabuse the agency of any notion that state propaganda is not a thing on Twitter. This exchange is odd, among other things, because some of the bibliography materials cited by the FITF are sourced to intelligence officials who in turn cited the public sources. So we have circular reporting here that ultimately is sauceless. It's just circular reporting and Twitter's in the loop on this and the FBI is, yeah, okay, this is, <laughs> okay. The FBI responded to Friday's report by saying it, quote, regularly engages with private sector entities to provide information specific to identified foreign malign influence actors and subversive undeclared covert or criminal activities. That may be true. We haven't seen that in the documents to date. Instead, we've mostly seen requests for moderation involving low follower accounts belonging to Ordinary Americans and Billy Baldwin. And then he links to Barry Weiss and Schellenberger because they're going to be up next to give more. I think that's I think that's what's going on here, guys, is this circular reporting. You have intelligence community apparatchiks leaking things to the media, seeding stories in the media about foreign malign influence campaigns. And then FBI picking up on that, especially agents like Chan. Oh no, the, the newspaper says that this is going on. We better talk to Twitter about it. And Twitter's like, I don't know what you're talking about. We ain't seen this going on on our end. And then the FBI is like, what do you mean? You ain't seen this. This is coming from the intelligence community. And then they, what are you doing? And they give them all these questions. And then Twitter gets in a panic, like, oh gosh, the FBI is telling us we should have observed this stuff and we're not seeing any indication of it. And it's just this circular. And then the FBI gives them these sources, which are newspaper articles. Those newspaper paper articles point back to anonymous sources that are reportedly from the intelligence community, which is the same thing. The F- Okay. Yeah. It's just this cycle right here. And it's all started because of, Probably clowns in the newspaper. I hope what I just said makes sense. <laughs> I'm not sure it did, but that's that's what I get out of it. Okay. And then we have today. Yeah, I've been going for over two hours. I'm going to keep going, though. I saw somebody say goodnight. I think it was E.H. Kyle, maybe. Um. TVT, um, when you say, oh, no, I don't know what that. Oh, you mentioned Avatar. If you mean the, I think you mean the movie. Yeah, I've never watched that. Um, Unless you mean Avatar, The Last Airbender, the um, anime. I love that show. (laughs) I absolutely love that show. Yeah, Jail of Judges, you say FBI was gaslighting Twitter. See, I would say that the intelligence community is gaslighting the media who are then gaslighting Agents in F in the FBI who are too reliant on the media, such as lefty Elvis Chan, and then FBI Elvis Chan goes and gaslights Twitter, and then gaslight then Twitter gaslights themselves, and it's just this big circle. <laughs> yeah, R. Terrell is the same as RussiaGate, isn't it? It's the exact same, isn't it? <laughs> oh, 
Oh, Miss Laura, you watched that with your grandson, dude. I have a. Uh, it's over there on my. It's over there on my shelf. I have Oppa on my shelf over there. Oh yeah, I forgot. I left my camera off, didn't I? Uh, there, I, there I am over there on my shelf. I have an Oppa. I, Avatar: The Last Air, Airbender is a fantastic show. Absolutely fantastic. It's one of my favorite things that me and my son have ever watched together. All right, now we got part seven. And this is a long one, but I'm here for it. I hope you guys are here for it too. Um, like I said, the part six, I thought the headlines written about it didn't match what we actually got in that thread. Um, this two over the top, not that there weren't things to write about it and say, this is bad. I just thought it was, there was an overreaction and it was too hyperbolic. And I'm kind of sensitive to those things because I'm always watching out for fake news. And so, and I also thought that Matt Taibbi didn't include enough receipts. And I've been, I've said this a few times, um, probably mostly in my private chat that I wanted more receipts. I want more receipts for what is being claimed and written about in these threads. And Michael Schellenberger delivered today. This is my favorite Twitter thread by far because it delivers on the receipts. So Buster Lou. I believe it's an Edison, but it's a real radio. It's a real radio with a cassette player and all and it works. It's great. All right. Twitter Files Part 7 by Michael Schellenberger. Thank you guys for sticking with me tonight. The FBI and the Hunter Biden laptop. Uh, Brian, the coconut porter is excellent. How the FBI and intelligence community discredited factual information about Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings both after and before the New York Post revealed the contents of his laptop on October 14th, 2020. In Twitter Files Part 6, we saw the FBI relentlessly seek to exercise influence over Twitter, including over its content, its users, and its data. In Twitter Files Number 7, we present evidence pointing to an organized effort by representatives of the intelligence community, the IC, aimed at senior executives at news and social media companies to discredit leaked information about Hunter Biden before and after it was published. The story begins in December 2019 when a Delaware computer store owner named John Paul Mac Isaac contacts the FBI about a laptop that Hunter Biden had left with him. On December 9th, 2019, the FBI issues a subpoena for and takes Hunter Biden's laptop. And there, See, I love this guy because he even reclu- included the receipts for that. He even included the receipts for that. Well done, Michael Schellenberger. I am a fan. By August 2020, Mac Isaac still had not heard back from the FBI, even though he had discovered evidence of criminal activity. And so he emails Rudy Giuliani. I got a question. I'm just going to pose to you guys and move on. Why in the world would the FBI tell Mac Mac Isaac about anything? Like, why would the FBI get back in touch with Mac Isaac to tell him? about what they were doing with the laptop. 
They wouldn't, right? Anyway. And so he emails Rudy Giuliani, who was under FBI surveillance at the time, because Rudy Giuliani is an asset, by the way. He's an FBI, he's a DOJ asset and has been for decades. In early October, Giuliani gives it to the New York Post. Shortly before 7 p.m. Eastern, October 13th, Hunter Biden's lawyer, George Mazares, or Mazares, I'm going to say George Mazares, emails J.P. Mac Isaac. Hunter and Mazares had just learned from the New York Post that its story about the laptop would be published the next day. John Paul, thank you for speaking with me tonight. As I indicated, I am a lawyer for Hunter Biden, and I appreciate you reviewing your records on this matter. Thank you, George. At 9.22 p.m., FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan sends 10 documents to Twitter's then head of site integrity, Yoel Roth, through Teleporter, a one-way communications channel from the FBI to Twitter. Heads up, I will be sending a Teleporter link for you to download 10 documents. It is not spam. Please confirm receipt when you get it. Thanks, regards, Elvis M. Chan. UL Roth confirms, received, and downloaded. Thanks. The next day, October 14th, 2020, the New York Post runs its explosive story revealing the business dealings of President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Every single fact in it, the story, was accurate. And yet, within hours... Twitter and other social media companies censor the New York Post article, preventing it from spreading and, more importantly, undermining its credibility in the minds of many Americans. Why is that? What exactly happened? On December 2nd, Matt Taibbi described the debate inside Twitter over its decision to censor a wholly accurate article. Since then, we have discovered new info that points to an organized effort by the Intel community to influence Twitter and other platforms. First, it's important to understand that Hunter Biden earned tens of millions of dollars in contracts with foreign businesses, including ones linked to China's government for such for which Hunter offered no real work. Here's an overview by investigative journalist Peter Schweitzer. This is worth listening to, and I'm going to use this opportunity to play this video and take a break for myself. Let me make sure I have my audio where I want it to be. Just a moment. Well, what we know is that the Biden family uh, has benefited from commercial deals overseas uh, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Uh, that's not in dispute. That's based on um, the so-called suspicious activity reports that the Treasury Department has re released because a U.S. Uh, Senate committee asked for it. These documents show the flow of funds um, from Russian, Ukrainian, and Chinese sources, among others. So we know there's been a flow of funds. We also know that the people sending that money uh, have very close relationships with the government. So in the case of China, for example, which I believe is the most troubling of the, of the group of foreign donors, um, you can actually look on the Hunter Biden laptop and find the businessmen who secured these deals uh, for Hunter Biden. Uh, there are four gentlemen that are named. Um, if you look at those four gentlemen, each and every one of them has close ties to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. 
So, for example, one gentleman who he calls the super chairman, uh, at the same time that Hunter Biden secures a deal with him that translates into about $20 million, that same Chinese businessman is business partners with the vice minister of state security in China, who is responsible for foreign recruitments. Uh, this has been reported in, in Hong Kong. This is not just Peter Schweitzer saying it. So you have the flow of funds. You have the flow of funds from foreign parties that are linked to the government and intelligence services. And then you have the third component of this, which is there's no discernible service or product or anything that Hunter Biden has brought to the table. So the question has to be asked, why are foreign actors like these four businessmen in China arranging deals worth tens of millions of dollars to the Bidens uh, and not getting anything in return. And what's important to point out here is that Hunter Biden uh, is the one who's the signatory on these deals, but the laptop also shows that money is fungible within the Biden family. We know that $2 million that arrived from China ended up with his uncle, James Biden. And we also know that Hunter Biden paid some of his father's bills while he was vice president of the United States. So this is not a Hunter Biden question. This is a larger Biden family question. Now, one of the things that I hear from Democrats is that they say, well, you know, this is kind of common. And look, the Trump family had all sorts of business dealings with Russia. Is that true? Uh, so the, the sorry, the Trump family does actually have some deals in China, although they kind of were unwinding. Um, and I raised questions about that and some of the finance deals that Jared Kushner uh, was involved in in the Middle East. Um, and those need scrutiny. They need analysis. And by the way, they were scrutinized by the mainstream media. So that's a good thing. The Biden deals weren't, but there, there's also a critical, crucial difference here in my mind. And that is the deals that the Trumps had with China. The, the, the one that really translated into money was a deal that Ivanka Trump had for the manufacturing of shoes and other things in, in her apparel line. That was a line started, you know, 10, 15 years ago. My point being, those were actual legitimate businesses that predate any involvement in You certainly don't watch them and be aware of them and, and, and take them into account. With the Bidens, we're not talking about that. Hunter Biden, after his father becomes vice president of the United States, suddenly decides he's going to go into international finance. Ill-defined. He has no background. He has no experience. Uh, and he's not doing deals in London or Tokyo. He immediately goes to Russia, China, and Ukraine for those deals. So I, I believe all foreign uh, deals should uh, should be scrutinized. But you have to differentiate, my, in my mind, the difference between, say, Michael Bloomberg, who his company, Bloomberg, has major business deals and dealings in China, uh, which need to be watched. But that's a legitimate business. You cannot compare that to Rosemont Seneca mm -hmm. Partners, uh, which is frankly, in a large extent, a fictitious business entity that was funneling money to Hunter Biden and his family. Awesome. And yet, back to the thread. And yet, during all of 2020, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies repeatedly primed Yoel Roth to dismiss reports of Hunter Biden's laptop as a Russian, quote, hack and leak or hack and dump operation. 
This is from a sworn declaration by Roth given in December of 2020. Since what was, this is Effie. Sorry, my brain is squirreling. What was he giving a deposition for? Covington, Mr. Jeff Jordan, Federal Election Commission. A complaint filed by Tea Party Patriots Foundation. Okay. Okay. Was curious about that. December 21st, 2020. Okay. Since 2018, I have had regular meetings with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, DHS, and FBI, and industry peers regarding election security. During these weekly meetings, the federal law enforcement agencies communicated that they expect hack and leak operations by state actors might occur in the period shortly before the 2020 presidential election, likely in October. I was told in these meetings that the intelligence community expected the individuals associated with the political campaigns would be subject to hacking operations and that material obtained through those hacking operations would likely be disseminated over social media platforms, including 2020. These expectations of hack and leak operations were discussed throughout 2020. They did the same to Facebook, according to CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Quote, the FBI basically came to us and was like, hey, you should be on high alert. We thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in 2016 election. There's about to be some kind of uh, some kind of dump similar to that. The background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, uh, some, some folks on our team. It was like, hey, um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the, we, we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of, of, um, uh, that's similar to that. I remember when this, uh, clip came out from, from Zuckerberg on Rogan and I felt then, and I still do feel now, and this is informed by Zuckerberg's testimony and his actions in front of the, in front of Congress, because he was inviting Congress to regulate Facebook and other social media. And I think that was to protect, to uh, take pressure off of them. And I felt from this quote then, this segment here, and I still think that he's trying to blame shift to the FBI. And I think that's something we should keep in mind, okay? I think I think in these files that are coming out about the FBI and DHS and other agencies and their relationship with Twitter and with Facebook and any other um, outfit. I think we should keep in mind that the tech company, the social media company, it's in their interest to try and blame the government agencies for the censorship they conducted as much as possible, right? Like it, ben- it would benefit Twitter and the people who did this censorship. It would be it would be to their benefit to blame shift to the FBI, DHS, intelligence community, whatever, as much as possible in order to take the heat off of themselves. Likewise, the government agencies have the same 
have a similar dynamic in the opposite direction. It makes sense for the FBI and DHS and others to say, look, no, we just, we just tried to inform them of these possibilities and alert them to things we were concerned about. They make their own decisions. We didn't tell them to do this stuff. We just let inform them of the threats and the concerns that we had and that these things might violate their terms of service. Right. Just, I think it's, I think it's a good thing for all of us to keep in mind the dynamic there of somebody's going to end up with a big chunk of blame, right? And they're going to try and blame shift to one another. And we just need to be aware of that dynamic is all. Were the FBI back to the thread from Schellenberger Were the FBI warnings of a Russian hack and leak operation relating to Hunter Biden based on any new Intel? No, they weren't. Through our investigation, we did not see any similar competing intrusions to what happened in 2016, admitted FBI agent Chan. This is from the Missouri case where agent Chan was deposed that it is that that case has has given us so much information, especially this deposition from Chan. Um, so much. Asking about the 2020 election. Question, were hack and dump operations discussed at these meetings or hack and leak operations? Answer, yes, they were. Question, tell me what was discussed about them at those meetings. Answer, the context of hack and dump is what was the FBI and and CISA doing, CISA, to prevent hack and dump operations. So, from the FBI side, I think we already, I already relayed to you that we had the Protective Voices Initiative. I can't remember the specifics, but CISA also discussed its cybersecurity awareness efforts as well as grants efforts with the um, with the state, count, county, and local level election officials. Question: Did anyone at these meetings tell the industry participants to expect a Russian hack and dump operation or hack and leak operation shortly before the 2020 election cycle? There was an objection. Then. Chan says, from my recollection, I remember that the FBI warned, or a witness says, I remember that the FBI warned that I or someone from the FBI warned the social media companies about the potential for a 2016 style DNC hack and dump operation. The witness is Elvis Chan. Yeah, it is Chan. Had to make sure. Yeah, it is. It's Chan. What exactly did you say to the social media companies about that? Answer, essentially what I just told you. You said that there might be a Russian hack and dump operation answer. So what I said was, although we have not seen any computer intrusions into national level political committees or election officials or presidential candidates at this time, we ask you to remain vigilant about the potential for hack and dump operations or something to that effect. Question. Did you specifically refer to the 2016 hack and dump operation that targeted the DCCC and the DNC answer? I believe I did. Did you provide any basis to the social media platforms for thinking that such an operation might be coming? Answer. The basis was, my basis was, it had happened once and could happen again. Did you have any other specific information other than it had happened four years ago? Answer. 
Through our investigations, we did not see any similar competing intrusions to what had happened in 2016. So although from our standpoint we had not seen anything, we specifically, in an abundance of caution, warned the companies in case they saw something we did not. Question. So did you ask the companies if they had seen any attempts to intrusions or unauthorized access? Answer. This is something that we that are, are regularly at. We I regularly ask the companies in the course of our meetings. Question. Do you ask them in these meetings? Did you ask them this in the, in the meetings? Not at every meeting, but I, I believe I asked them at some meetings. Question, and did you repeatedly warn them at these meetings that you anticipated there might be hack and dump operations and Russian-initiated hack and dump operations? Answer, so repeatedly I would say, um, can you can you ask your question like, what do you, what do you mean by repeatedly? Like a hundred times, five times? Question, well, did you do it more than once? Answer, I did it more, yes, yes. I warned the companies about a potential for hack and dump operations from the Russians and the Iranians on more than one occasion, although I cannot recollect how many times. Question, did anybody else at the FBI talk about hack and dump operations? Answer, from my recollection, other senior officials, to include Section Chief Dimlo, likely mentioned the possibility of hack and dump operations. This is amazing, guys, that we have these Twitter threads happening at the same time or right after this Missouri case and all of this this deposition from Elvis Chan that happened in the Missouri case. It's like these two things that were happening that you wouldn't think were related, right? Elon Musk buying Twitter, the Missouri case against Biden, which ends up getting this agent to testify in it, and it's all connecting right now, like right now, it, right before Christmas, it's, it's informing us so, of so much. All right. Back to Taib or Schellenberger's thread. Indeed, Twitter executives repeatedly reported very little Russian activity on September 24th, 2020 Twitter told FBI it had removed 345 largely inactive accounts linked to previous coordinated Russian hacking attempts. They had little reach and low follower counts. And we have a receipt for that claim right here. And this is, again, this is something that was FITF, the Foreign Influence Task Force. So we have another example of where the FBI is like, it makes sense that they would notify Twitter of these accounts that were confirmed foreign influence accounts. And then Twitter would respond to that and do this. That makes sense. It doesn't make sense for FBI to spend their time flagging joke accounts or joke tweets. Um, but you can, it does make sense that Twitter under the direction of Yoel Roth would be like, Ooh, goody, I'm going to ban all these conservatives. In fact, Twitter debunked false claims by journalists of foreign influence on its platform. Quote, we haven't seen any evidence to support that claim. Quote, our review thus far shows a small scale domestic troll effort. Oh, man, I believe that there's tons of trolls on Twitter. I have an abundance of caution. I want to reach out to you. This is to Yoel Roth from Elvis Chan again. Man, these two guys, 
second start, the second part of the article focuses, oh, they're used. Okay. All right. They're using a WAPO story about white nationalist group posing as Antifa. And then you have these two leftists who think who are using this as a pretense to go and ban accounts. After FBI asked about WAPO's story and alleged foreign influence in a pro-Trump tweet, Twitter's Roth says, quote, the article makes a lot of insinuations, but we saw no evidence that that was the case here. And in fact, a lot of strong evidence pointing in the other direction. Which one of these came first? This is August 31st at 2.15. Okay. Twitter inquiry about this one account. Quote, I've been a Democrat my whole life. I joined the BLM protest months months ago when they began. They opened my eyes wide. I didn't realize I had became... I didn't realize I became a Marxist. It happened without me even knowing it. I'm done with this trash. I'm registering Republican. That's the tweet. From Yoel Roth. Hi, Elvis. Thanks for checking in. I can confirm that the account in question is domestic in origin. The article makes a lot of insinuations about foreign interference, but we saw no evidence of that in this case. Black voters are being targeted by disinformation campaign is the article. It's not the first time that Twitter, that Twitter's Yoel Roth has pushed back against the FBI. In January 2020, Roth resisted FBI efforts to get Twitter to share data outside of the normal search warrant process. My colleague, this it's not this isn't to Yoel Roth. Someone else at Twitter. My colleagues at the fort had a query for you. I provided it to you below. A few years ago, a few years ago, Twitter said they would no longer provide their data feed to members of the intelligence community. My colleagues want to know if that policy has changed or if you would be willing to change it. My colleagues are currently contracting with a vendor for an analytical tool for open source intelligence. The commercial version of this tool includes the Twitter data feed. However, the feed was disabled because the vendor said they did not want to violate their terms of service with Twitter. My colleagues are wondering if Twitter would be open to revising its terms of service to allow this vendor to continue having access to the Twitter feed. My colleagues are happy to meet in person to discuss this issue if you'd like. Regards, Elvis. This, and then a follow-up, this communication contains neither recommendations nor conclusions of the FBI. It is the property of the FBI and loan to the agency. From Yoel Roth. As discussed, here's my suggested response. Feel free to tweak and edit. And this is what Yoel says. At this point, we don't think a call directly with your colleague at the fort is the best path forward. As a rule, we're not able to directly discuss data licensing relationships with third parties, both due to confidentiality reasons and limited information on our end about the business decisions that may have led to one of the customers to decline to provide the service to the government. We also have a longstanding policy prohibiting the use of our data products and APIs for surveillance and intelligence gathering purposes. Ultimately, we want to be a good partners to the government 
and help combat our shared threats. But the best path for NSA or any part of the government to request information about Twitter users or their content is in accordance with the valid legal process. I was wondering if they meant Fort Meade, Maryland, and they do. It's talking about NSA here, and they keep calling it the fort, but they're talking about Fort Meade, Maryland, where the NSA is headquartered. Yep. Quote, we have seen a sustained, if uncoordinated, effort by the IC, intelligence community, to push us to share more info and change our API policies. They are probing and pushing everywhere they can, including by whispering to congressional staff. This is my favorite tweet in this thread, guys. Right here. Carlos Monge, or Monge, to Yoel Roth. I definitely agree with the caution here. We have seen a sustained, if uncoordinated, effort by the IC to push us to share more information and change our API policies. They are probing and pushing everywhere, including by whispering to congressional staff. We should stay connected and keep a solid front against these efforts. My sense from the exchange below is that Elvis is sending a message he was asked to, but that he doesn't feel ownership of it, and polite discussion will suffice to answer the mail here. Do we know which commercial provider is being referenced here by the clues offered? Do we feel like there is any additional guidance we can give to those companies that could help clarify our rules and minimize their efforts to point back to our API? It seems that Data Miner has gotten that message clearly, but we keep getting additional queries from elsewhere. I want to know whose congressional staff this was. Of course, Watermelon Head Adam, Adam Schiff comes to mind. But there are many swampy Republicans who might be involved here, too. That's we got to find this out. We got to find out which congressional staff were, were involved here time. And again, the, that's OK. That's not, back on my point earlier about how the blame shifting would go on between government agencies and the tech companies. Same dynamic with Congress. Same dynamic where Congress is want to is going to want to shift blame for these things. What's in these threads, they're going to want to shift that blame to the FBI or Twitter. When really, I think between the three groups, Twitter, FBI, and the politicians, the politicians may deserve the most blame here. One, for lack of oversight. Two, for trying to influence Twitter's behavior through threats of calling them before hearings and things like that, right? Um, that's how, this, that's how the swamp oper- operates. They're going to want to push the blame to others. We haven't yet identified, back to the thread, time and again, FBI asked Twitter for evidence of foreign influence, and Twitter responds that they aren't finding anything worth reporting. We haven't yet identified activity that we typically refer to you or even flag as interesting in the foreign influence context. Despite Twitter's pushback, the FBI repeatedly requests information from Twitter that Twitter has already made clear it will not share outside of normal legal channels. Good for them. Then in July, 2020, the FBI's Elvis Chan arranges for temporary top secret security clearances for Twitter executives. 
so that the FBI can share information about threats to the upcoming election. Since I brought email from Elvis Chan to Yoel Roth, since I brought up the security clearances during our call, I don't think we have anyone at Twitter who has a permanent security clearance. Correct me if I'm wrong. What I would propose is that 30 days out from the election, we get you temporary clearances. You get to pick who they would be. Let me know what you think. Thank you. On August 11th, 2020, the FBI's Chan shares information with Twitter's Roth related to the Russian hacking organization APT28 through the FBI secure one-way communication channel teleporter. There it is right there. Alcon, in advance of this week's meeting, I'm going to be sending you three documents through an FBI application called Teleporter, which will expire in 24 hours. Please download the documents when you get a chance. The documents will denote the actors, so I'm providing them here. Okay. Recently, Yoel Roth had Kara Swisher, or told Kara Swisher, that he had been primed to think about the Russian hacking group, APT28, before the news of the Hunter Biden laptop came out. When it did, Roth said it set off every single one of my finely tuned APT28 hack and leak campaign alarm bells. I, I mean, you can understand that, right? Let's listen to this clip. We learn about DC leaks, and we learn about the intersection between APT28, a unit of Russian military intelligence, a hacking group. And so the morning of the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post happens. And it was weird, right? We didn't know what to believe. We didn't know what was true. There was, there was smoke. And ultimately for me, uh, it didn't reach a place where I was comfortable removing this content from Twitter. But it set off every single one of my finely tuned APT28 hack and leak campaign alarm right, So it looked possibly probably. It, everything about it looked you like a hack not- and leak. I got, I got to say, I can, based on the information that we have, I can, I can understand. I can understand where he's coming from and how he would think the Hunter Biden laptop was that. The pro, the problem is that is knowing how much of a leftist he is. And knowing how much of a leftist Elvis Chan is, and then knowing that the New York Post had this laptop, and there wasn't anything about it that was untrue, their 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 story was true, and Twitter immediately jumped to not just remove the story, but suspend the New York Post altogether. So. It's very, very difficult to believe that if if it was something different, that they would have done the same. Like if it was Don Jr.'s laptop that detailed anything analogous to what Hunter's did, and it had come out in the New York Times, do you believe for one second that Yoel Roth would have moved like he did? And done the things he did and that Twitter would have done the thing. I mean, none of us can believe that. 
So it's like everything was prepared ahead of the Hunter Biden laptop story coming out to set the stage for Yoel Roth to have the perspective that he did and to act the way he did. And it was very predictable given who Yoel Roth is. But I can also, I can understand. Yeah. Not excusing it. I'm just saying I can, I can have some empathy and put myself in his shoes a bit and see how he arrived at that. I just don't believe he would have acted similarly if it had been an analogous situation from the other direction. And back to the thread in August, 2020 FBI's Chan asked Twitter, does anyone there have top secret clearance? When someone mentions Jim Baker, Chan responds, I don't know how I forgot about him. An odd claim given Chan's job is to monitor Twitter, not to mention that they work together at the FBI. Who is Jim Baker? Well, he's former general counsel of the FBI, 2014 to 2018, and one of the most powerful men in the U.S. intel community. Baker has moved in and out of government for 30 years, serving stints at CNN, Bridgewater, $140 billion asset management firm, and Brookings. And it lists Jim Baker's CV. Which is incredible. As general counsel of the FBI, Baker played a central role in making the case internally for an investigation of Donald Trump. Donald Trump was never under investigation, but that's another topic for another day. Baker wasn't the only senior FBI exec involved in the Trump investigation to go to Twitter. Don Burton, the former deputy chief of staff to FBI head James Comey, who initiated the investigation of Trump, which isn't actually a thing but the media reported as such relentlessly joined Twitter in 2019 as director of strategy. As of 2020, there were so many former FBI employees bureau alumni working at Twitter that they had created their own private Slack channel and a crib sheet to onboard new FBI arrivals. It's like a cheat sheet to introduce them to terms and stuff. Efforts continue to influence Twitter's Yoel Roth. In September 2020, Roth participated in an Aspen Institute tabletop exercise. Now, this is one of the most interesting things about this, guys. And it points to why Yoel Roth was so primed. See, actually, you know what? I wonder if absent this right here, if Yoel Roth would have acted the way he did. I don't think what the FBI was giving him was, was all that he that was in his mind. This tabletop exercise that the Aspen Institute involved him in seems like it, I would reckon it had more of an effect on him. The goal Back to the thread. In September 2020, Roth participated in an Aspen Institute tabletop exercise on a potential hack and dump operation relating to Hunter Biden. The goal was to shape how the media covered it and how social media carried it. Check this thing out on day one, Monday, October 5th. Okay, so this is a tabletop exercise, and it's literally the Burisma leak. This was carried out in September 2020 as a work group. 
Day one, Monday, October 5th, anonymous website, bidencrimes.info, and a Twitter account, Hunter LOLs, begin posting documents that purport to be from Burisma, tied to Hunter Biden. Splashed across the top of the site in English is Joe Biden betrayed America for money. He'll do it again. Initially, the documents, mostly in Ukrainian, appear to be minutes of various Burisma board meetings, internal emails, and financial records. This is initially no sign of a smoking gun. Note the website appears to have been first registered in 2016. No ownership information is public. The Twitter account was created in 2014, oddly just before Hunter joined the Burisma board. It was has tweeted once and follows one person. Day 2. Tuesday, October 6. The Drudge Report links to the anonymous website BidenCrimes.info, and the site is quickly picked up by other fringe media and begins to spread on social media sites. Day 3. Wednesday, October 7th. Fox and Friends discusses BidenCrimes.info in its 7 a.m. block. Donald Trump's Twitter account tweets six minutes later, quote, is Joe Biden biggest criminal of all time? Check out Hunter LOLs. Three reporters, Dinah Temple, Raisin, and Donnie Sullivan, O'Sullivan, and Ellen Nakashima are contacted by an anonymous ProtonMail account, Biden Crimes at ProtonMail, and each sent a different document. None of the documents have appeared on the public website. They are each told they are the only reporter receiving a, di- a specific document. Dinah's document purports to be a ledger of payments showing that Hunter Biden was paid $3 million over two months in 2015 for Burisma, far more than had been previously reported or been publicly reported. Donnie's document is a 2016 email report, purportedly from Hunter to his father, dated the evening before the firing of prosecutor Victor Shokin, simply titled Burisma, and the body of which reads, quote, I really need you to do this for me. Ellen's document purports to be the board contact between Burisma and Hunter. In Ukraine, Burisma announces that it has no evidence of any hack of its servers and disavows all files as forgeries. Day 4. I'm sorry this isn't displaying for y'all as well as it should be. I'll try to help y'all out over here. The Biden campaign adopting the policy of Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 and the Macron campaign says they will not confirm the veracity of any documents. CrowdStrike announces, without further detail, it has reason to believe that BidenCrimes.info is the work of Fancy Bear, APT28. I forgot to tell you, Fancy, y'all may remember Fancy Bear from the Mueller report. Um, in 2016, that is the Russian hacking group APT28, and they were give they were given the name Fancy Bear during the 2016 hack. CNN's Jim Jim Squito reports an anonymous Cloudflare executive who says that he doubts the CrowdStrike appraisal. Cloudflare believes that no foreign actor is involved and has evidence that BidenLeaks.info is being hosted and run by Americans. At 4 p.m., the Washington Post publishes a story by Ellen Nakashima confirming that the Burisma board contact given to her is legitimate. There is no wrongdoing evident or alleged in the document. But Burisma sources confirm the document is real. Cesar Conde, the chairman of NBC News, announces that because of the suspicion that BidenCrimes.info leaks are coming from a foreign power, 
with the goal of undermining America's free and fair elections. No aspect of NBC News or MSNBC will report on the allegations. In his statement carried live on Evening News with Lester Holt, he asked all other news organizations to follow NBC's leadership. The Guardian quickly announces it will follow the same principle as does the Huffington Post. At Ohio Trump rally that night, crowd starts chanting, lock him up. President Trump at podium pumps his fist as the crowds chant. Day 5, October 9th. In a statement released at 9 a.m. and signed only by him, Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe says he has no reason to believe the documents posted by Hunter Biden crimes or BidenCrimes.info are forgeries, nor does the IC have any reason to believe the website is a Russian operation. At 11 a.m. on the House floor, House Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff says that according to his briefings, the IC is not being forthright with the American people about the source and veracity of the leaks. Also at 11 a.m., the Mandiant releases a short statement saying it has traced the source of BidenLeaks.info to infrastructure consistent with China's Ministry of State Security. My gosh, guys. Remember, this is a tabletop exercise that happened in September 2020 conducted by the Aspen Institute that Yoel Roth was at. And it completely, I saw you guys using the term conditioning in chat. Yes, this conditioned Yoel Roth ahead of the Biden laptop drop to treat it the way he did. At 2 p.m., Hunter LOLs tweets out a link to a zip file that appears to contain a new tranche of 20,000 documents, mostly in Ukrainian. Almost simultaneously, Donald Trump Jr., Team Trump, Brad Parscale, and others retweet it. By 3 p.m., Twitter determines that the hosting service for the zip tweeted by Hunter LOLs traces back to a server in Hong Kong. That afternoon, Facebook sources inside the IC tell Facebook to be wary of the DNI statement. Yeah, John Ratcliffe's a liar. At 5 p.m., Dinah Templeton Raston airs an NPR story saying that she has confirmed the $3 million payment document she received is fake. Day 6, October, Saturday, October 10th, overnight, progressive blogger Josh Marshall notices and tweets out one document in the new tranche that appears to be a confirmation of a wire transfer of a million dollars from Deutsche Bank to an offshore account in the name of Hunter. Dated two days after the firing of Chief Prosecutor Shokin, overnight independent security researchers and news agencies find the majority of the zip files are authentic. At 10 a.m., the New York Times posts a story saying that two anonymous senior Justice Department officials in Washington say that acting U.S. attorney in D.C. has impaneled a grand jury to investigate Joe Biden. We wish. Day 7. If, as if anything happens that quickly in D.C. Come on. That's the, that's, the most fan, that's the most farcical part of this so far that DOJ would act within five days to impanel a grand jury. Get the Get out of here. That's BS. That's the most unbelievable part, unbelievable part of this. October 11th, day seven, Sunday. On the Sunday shows, Biden campaign staff dismissed the entire hack and leak as dirty and tricks by Vladimir Putin. Now that sounds, that sounds probable. After the morning show's air, the Daily Beast quotes two former senior intelligence officials that the directors of CIA and NSA refused to sign Ratcliffe's statement. 
Alex Berenson announces on Twitter that he's conducted an interview via DM with the person behind Hunter LOLs, and he believes the person is an American. All right, last page of this, this fantasy. At 7.15 a.m., sorry, let me move this around on the screen for y'all. At 7.15 a.m., President Trump calls into Fox and Friends and says he hopes the FBI will investigate Biden. At 9 a.m., Attorney General Bill Barr holds a press conference to say the American people deserve the truth, and he has instructed the FBI to verify the allegations of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's corruption. I can't help but laugh at that. He announces that the Justice Department is investigating wrongdoing by Hunter Biden and Joe Biden for money laundering, tax fraud, theft of honest services, and acting as an unregistered for it. Okay, God dang, this is funny. So... <laughs> That's so funny because Bill Barr actually did task a U.S. attorney Weiss to investigate Hunter Biden and uh, Jim Biden, James Biden, for tax fraud and failing to register as a foreign agent. <laughs> so like that, this part almost actually happened word for word. And the the, the lefty media refuses to report on it. All right, 11 a.m., Blumenthal says the American people are being lied to and demands an interview. Paul Nakasone, Gina Haspel, and Chris Ray owe America the truth. I can't say more than that. At 2 p.m., Jim Comey tweets, quote, FBI agents tell me they are being silenced about the truth. Donald Trump is illegally coordinating with Putin. He must resign. <laughs> At 7.30 p.m., Rudy Giuliani says on Fox News that he was right all along. 2019 Ukraine pressure campaign. Day 9, Tuesday, October 13th. Trump tweets at 6.15 a.m. See, Ukrainian phone call was perfect. I knew Sleepy Joe was was actually Crooked Joe. I mean, that actually does kind of sound like a Trump tweet. Tell the FBI to lock him up. Day 10 in this tabletop exercise, which is literally the day that the laptop did get published in real life. Rep. Nunez, Senator Tom Cotton, and Secretary of State Pompeo announced they will travel immediately to Kiev to get Burisma's cooperation with the unfolding investigation. They depart that night on a official U.S. government jet. The next day is the second presidential debate. These lefties sure have some really hilarious fantasies, but this there's no doubt this tabletop exercise primed Yoel Roth for the assessments and moves he would make at Twitter. There's no doubt. I mean, this is incre- it's incredible that the Aspen Institute tabletopped this scenario so accurately as to how it played out, and I can't help but wonder what was the impetus for them to construct, to put together this, this tabletop exercise. I think I have a good idea. I think I, I think I do. All right. Back to the thread. The organizer was Vivian Schiller, the former CEO of NPR, former head of news at Twitter, former general manager of New York times, former chief digital officer of NBC. Attendees included meta, Facebook's head of security policy and top national security reporters for New York Times and WAPO. 
By mid-September 2020, Chan and Roth had set up an encrypted messaging network so employees from FBI and Twitter could communicate. They also agreed to create a virtual war room for all the internet industry plus FBI and ODNI. Then on September 15, 2020, the FBI's Laura Dimlow, who heads up the Foreign Influence Task Force, and Elvis Chan request to give a classified briefing for Jim Baker without any other Twitter staff, such as Yoel Roth, present. Dasting. On October 14th, shortly after the New York Post publishes its Hunter Biden laptop story, Roth says, quote, it isn't clearly violative of our hacked materials policy, nor is it clearly in violation of anything else, but adds, this feels a lot like a somewhat subtle leak operation. In response to Roth, Baker repeatedly insists that the Hunter Biden materials were either faked, hacked, or both. And a violation of Twitter policy, Baker does so over email and in a Google Doc on October 14th and 15th. There it is right there from Jim Baker. I support the conclusion that we need more facts to assess whether the materials were hacked. At this stage, however, it is reasonable for us to assume that they may have been they may have been hacked and that caution is warranted. There are some facts that indicate that the materials may have been hacked, while there are others indicating the computer was either abandoned and or the owner consented to allow the repair shop to access it for at least some purposes. We simply need more information. Okay, that's that's not as firm as what Schellenberger characterized here. This email from Jim Baker to Yoel Roth, Yoel Roth. One additional comment. I've seen some reliable cybersecurity folks question the authenticity of the emails on the laptop in another way, that there is no metadata pertaining to them that has been released and the formatting tools look like they could be complete fabrication. From Jim Baker again, October 15th at 3.44 a.m. Folks, I'm guessing that we are going to restrict access to this article from the New York Post as a violation of our hacked materials policy, but after yesterday, I don't want to assume anything. And yet, it's inconceivable Baker believed the Hunter Biden emails were either fake or hacked. The New York Post had included a picture of the receipt signed by Hunter Biden in an FBI subpoena showing that the agency had taken possession of the laptop in December 2019. That's the real kicker, isn't it? Everybody who read the New York Post story knew, including Jim Baker, including Yoel Roth, and everybody else at Twitter, all of them knew that this existed right here and was in the story. All of them knew. As for the FBI, it likely would have taken a few hours for it to confirm that the laptop had belonged to Hunter Biden. Indeed, it only took a few days for Peter Schweitzer to prove it. When the laptop dropped in uh, 2020, I had no idea where it came from. I didn't know if it was real. But what I did was I took the files on the Hunter Biden laptop and I compared it to bodies of information that we knew were absolutely true. So, for example... The Secret Service, again, at the request of the U.S. Senate Committee, had released Hunter Biden's travel records. So we were able to take the laptop and say 
when he says he's in Dubai, does that correspond with the Secret Service travel records? If he's emailing somebody and saying, I'm in Hong Kong, does that line up? In each and every case, it lined up. Then we compared the laptop to the suspicious activity reports, the SARS reports. Uh, when the emails referenced $5 million being wired uh, to Hunter Biden's business, does that correspond with the SARS? And again, it lined up completely. And the laptop really came out at about the same time as the Secret Service travel logs and the wire transfers. So it really would not have been possible for somebody to you know, create thousands of emails simultaneously to demonstrate it. Then the final thing we did, Michael, is we looked at Hunter Biden's laptop emails and we compared them with a collection that we'd received from Hunter Biden's business partners, a guy named Bevan Cooney, who's in jail. He shared his Gmail account with us and we, we looked at it. The Hunter Biden laptops that have Bevan Cooney correspondence on them, do they actually line up with Bevan Cooney's Gmail account? And again, they did 100%. Now, I was able to do this in Florida with my researchers. The New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS News, ABC News could have done the same thing, but they were not interested in this story. They did not pursue this story. If you had told me that that information would come forward that Jimmy Carter's family or Ronald Reagan's family was receiving tens of millions of dollars from Russian businesses that were linked to the KGB, it would have set off alarm bells, rightfully so, to all kinds of news outlets. That's really the equivalent of what we're talking about here. And yet the media somehow convinced themselves that this was not an important or an interesting story. When the laptop... Well put by Peter Schweitzer right there. And I agree with Randy AB's um comment right there. It's not, this is this is, sounds like FBI 101. If this is what you mean by this that the work this guy did is what this guy did to confirm it was just easy OSINT sourcing or law enforcement investigation 101. I'm not sure that's what you were referring to, but that's what popped into my mind when I saw that is like this is just oh, let's verify this m reporting here. Verify this document, verify this material using open source intelligence that I can do sitting right here at my computer. And that's what he did. And it was, wasn't, that's not, it's not even complicated. All right, back to the thread. By 10 a.m., Twitter execs had bought into a wild hack and dump story. Quote, the suggestion from experts, which rings true, is there was a hack that happened separately and they loaded the hacked materials on the laptop that magically appeared at the repair shop in Delaware. And, of course, they mentioned 2016 WikiLeaks and all of that because they're all Orange Man Bad programmed. Yeah. Yeah. Brainwash, TDS. At 3.38 p.m. that same day, October 14th, Baker arranges a phone conversation with Matthew J. Perry in the Office of General Counsel of FBI. The influence operation persuaded Twitter execs that the Hunter Biden laptop did not come from whistleblowers or a whistleblower. One linked to a Hill article based on the WAPO article from October 15th, which falsely suggested that Giuliani's leak of the laptop had something to do with Russia. Fake news going to fake news. There is evidence that FBI agents have warned elected officials of foreign influence influence with the primary goal of leaking the information to the news media. This is a political dirty trick used to create the perception of impropriety. 
In 2020, the FBI gave a briefing to Senator Grassley and Johnson, claiming evidence of Russian interference into their investigation of Hunter Biden. The briefing angered the senators, who say it was done to discredit their own investigation. Quote, the unnecessary FBI briefing provided the Democrats and liberal media the vehicle to spread their false narrative that our work advanced Russian disinformation. I remember this letter. I remember this. Notably, then FBI General Counsel Jim Baker was investigated twice in 2017 and 2019 for leaking information to the news media. Quote, you're saying he's under criminal investigation. That's why you're not letting him answer? Meadows asked. Yes. In the end, FBI's influence campaign aimed at executives at news media, Twitter, and other social media companies worked. They censored and discredited the Hunter Biden laptop story. By December 2020, Baker and his colleagues even sent a note of thanks to the FBI for their work. The FBI's influence campaign may have been helped by the fact that it was paying Twitter millions of dollars for its staff time. Quote, I am happy to report we have collected $3.4 million since October 2019, reports an associate of Jim Baker in early 2021. All right. This one. I'm I'm not sure what I make of this right here. This report of FBI paying Twitter. And the reason is what it says in this email is Jim, for your information in 2019, scale, which is some program, scale instituted a reimbursement program for our legal process response from the FBI. Prior to the start of the program, Twitter chose not to collect under this statutory right of reimbursement for the time spent processing requests from the FBI. I am happy to report we have collected $3.4 million since October 2019. This money is used by LP for things like TTR and other law enforcement related projects such as training, tooling, etc. All right. This right here. I, I totally understand why people are seizing on this thing with FBI was paying Twitter. I'm I'm like 48 to 72 hour rule on this specific tweet. And the reason is because of this line. Twitter previous previously Twitter chose not to collect under this statutory right of reimbursement. So Twitter absolutely had the right to collect money for time spent on request processing request from the FBI. This right here requires oversight. I'm not necess- I'm not at this time ready to say this is bad bad bad. Because if the FBI comes to your business and to, and ask you to do things on their behalf for a law enforcement matter, you're going to want to be reimbursed for that time spent on that, right? Regardless of what it is, right? And whether or not you should be reimbursed, whether or not there should be a statutory right to reimbursement, um, whatever, like, 
that's a discussion to be had, but I'm not, I just think that, I just think that this is a 24 to, I think this is a 48 to 72 hour rule thing right here. And one of the things is I don't I'm not convinced that three point five million dollars is enough to buy off Twitter, so I don't read it as something where they're buying off Twitter with three point five million dollars stretched off out over from October 2019 to February 2021. Um, also, I don't really think they need to buy off Twitter. Twitter was stat was staffed with so many lefties who were so riddled with TDS and think MAGA is are literal Nazis that there's no need to buy them off. Um, so, so right here, I, I have this in my, I'm concerned about this, but it seems like something where it seems like something where there needs to be congressional oversight of this, not, I I almost feel like this is something where it would be easy for clickbait media to get everybody to make this into a a uh, a distraction where everybody focuses on this as this is some big gotcha when there's other things in this thread we've already covered that are much more egregious and deserve far more attention than three point four million dollars. So anyway, I do find it concerning. I just don't think it's the. Uh, I just don't think it's the gotcha that that some media are are portraying it as. Um, anyway, back to the thread. And the pressure from the FBI on social media platforms continues. In August 2022, Twitter execs prepared for a meeting with the FBI whose goal was, quote, to convince us to produce on more FBI EDRs. EDRs are an emergency disclosure request, a warrantless search. Dear team, it doesn't say who it's to and from right here. It's from August 25th, 2022. Team, I had an advanced prep call today with Redacted of the FBI for your September 6th meeting with them. Here are some key takeaways. Attending on the FBI side will be redacted, plus people from NTOC and perhaps others from violent crime headquarters. Their goal in the meeting is to convince us to produce more FBI emergency disclosure requests. They plan on bringing statistics on the rate of compliance and other things, forehead knockers, several forehead knockers. They repeatedly emphasize Twitter's lower level of compliance in comparison with Comparison with other platforms. Ooh. These bullet points make it seem like this will be a confrontational meeting, which I do not think it will be. Instead, I get the feeling they are generally baffled and frustrated that their rate of success, as they say, is low at Twitter. So these are warrantless searchers, searches, warrantless searches, and Twitter is less compliant than other social media. I'd really like to know what other social media is turning over in response to the Twitter files revelation of high level FBI agents at Twitter. Jim Jordan said, quote, I have concerns about whether the government was running a misinformation, misinformation operation on we, the people. 
Anyone who reads the Twitter files, regardless of their political orientation, should share those concerns. I absolutely agree. This is, okay, I find this far more concerning than this. $3.4 million stretched over October 2019 to February 10, 2021 for a statutory reimbursement program for time spent processing requests from the FBI. That is small potatoes to me compared to warrantless searches and, and the FBI having a confrontational meeting in August of this year wondering why Twitter is less compliant with these warrantless searches than other social media. This is where the libertarian in me really, really comes alive because this is like, mm, this is the, this is one of the most concerning things in here. And the redactions, um, hmm, I wonder what's under those redactions. I hope this is, I, I hope, see, this pay, this payment stuff for the scale program, Congress, you can, Republican Congress, you can skip over that and jump right to this document. Jump right to this document and figure out what is going on here. All right, guys, that was... Twitter files part seven, which is, is, is my favorite so far. This is how they all should be. And that's no, I mean, I have, I've appreciated the other Twitter files, um, that have come out, but this one, this one brought the receipts and I really appreciate that. I, I want receipts. I want documents and emails and Slack messages, other things. This this one was the best one because it carried the receipts and um, we need more of that. We need more of that. So shout out to Schellenberger. There's actually two more threads that I have set aside to have to do with the Aspen Institute and the intelligence community's influence on Twitter. But it is 1 a.m. And so I've been streaming for over three hours, I think. Yeah, I've been streaming for three and a half hours. Um, I think uh, I think it's time for me to conclude the show. So, you guys are nuts. I can't believe so many of you stuck with me for this entire show. Um, I've really I've really enjoyed it. Another marathon stream. Haven't done one of those in a long time, and uh, I'm glad that y'all were here for it. So. I'll be live again on uh, Wednesday night, 9.30 p.m., and uh, we'll we'll cover more topics. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I see Brian Murphy saying I dunked on John and Zach. Um, well, hey, you know what? John is, well, one, both of those guys are taller than me, so I don't know if I can actually dunk on them, like, literally. But John John can't stream for very long at a time. I don't know what's up with that. Um, 
he's kind of weak when it comes to marathon streams, but Zach, I won't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give any, I'm not going to knock on Zach at all. Zach does so many shows per week and I have no idea how he does it. I have all the respect in the world for Zach. I have no, I, I know what it takes to put together a program as far as research and to run a program, run a show, you know, and, I am I am continually impressed with Zach's ability to not only put on a show but put on so many shows during a week and all those shows have so much content like Zach is seriously impressive. Uh John, eh, you know, he's all he's all right. He he's all right. So, um thank you guys so much if you want to support the show um all the ways you can do it. Bensonhoneyfarms.com, rep code just human, buymeacoffee.com slash just human, or justhuman.substack.com. Get a subscription there. Uh, those are the best ways to support the show, guys. And I really appreciate your generosity and all the support you give me that you you guys make it possible for me to continue doing this. And I love doing it. So um, all the thanks to y'all. Merry Christmas. I will be back here on Wednesday at 9:30 p.m. and uh look fo- looking forward to it. We'll see what we'll see what else happens uh the rest of this week. Remember we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. Y'all have a great night. See you tomorrow. Well, see you Wednesday. <laughs>